This week, we welcome Kathleen Fisher, DARPA's Information Innovation Office Director, uh, to discuss the security risks of generative AI. In the security news, if an exploit falls in the forest, do I still need to patch? Reflections on trusting trust, the source code revealed. Prompt injection in your resume, iPhones be updating, a deep dive into vulnerable kernel drivers and wiping spy flash, cheap to exploit software, to ransom or to steal. Oh, 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 Florida man, doorbell shenanigans, don't pay the ransom, the White House and AI, quant and quantum teleportation via measurement-induced entanglement. All that and more on this episode of Paul's Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production for security professionals by security professionals. Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to all the shows on our network. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. And welcome to the show. But first, the man who puts the fun in security fundamentals, the knob in your sled, and the sub in your seven, Paul Asadorian. Coming to you in super low definition compliments of Darth Vader himself, this is Paul Security Weekly. It's episode number 805 being recorded on November 1st, 2023, right here in G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island. To my left, Mr. Dave Johnson coming in two weeks in a row. You move back in the area and you just you work your way right back into Security Weekly. I love it. Yeah, I it's love just, it. just the nature of uh, cybersecurity has its own gravitation. It does. Right here into the studio. And we're, we're con- now we're conspiring to do things on the show, like 3D printing. I hope we can make that happen. I'm really, <clears throat> I'm excited. I think so. Flipper accessories uh, are, are, are high on my list, but if anybody on the Discord channel has suggestions, uh, please drop them in. I want cases for all my Raspberry Pis and my Flipper Zeros. That's easy. Right? That's pretty, yeah. We can start there. Then we'll get more complicated from there. Mr. Sam Bound is here with us. Sam, welcome. Good evening. Glad to be here. Mr. Josh Marpet is here. Josh, welcome. Hey, always a pleasure and uh, very busy on the Discord already. We're already talking AI risk management over there. So hop on the Discord, everybody. Sweet. Bill Swearingen is here. Bill, welcome back. Your second appearance as co-host. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Dave, Larry, whatever your name is, you're looking great out there, too. (laughs) Now, let's see. Attend an Identiverse regional event on December 1st in New York City and December 5th in Chicago. Participate alongside local experts and regional peers in information-rich sessions on the latest technologies, best practices, and industry trends. Secure your complimentary registration at securityweekly.com forward slash IDV Regional Events 2023. That's IDV Regional Events 2023, all together, all lowercase. <clears throat> Dr. Kathleen Fisher leads program managers in DARPA's Information Innovation Office in the development of programs, technologies, and capabilities to ensure information advantage for the United States and its allies, and coordinates this work uh, with the Department of Defense and U.S. government. This is uh, Kathleen's second tour at DARPA, having previously served as a program manager from 2011 to 2014. She is a co-author of a recent paper about the threats posed by large language models. Kathleen, welcome to Paul Security Weekly. 
thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, it is nice to have you here. Uh, I apologize. I fumbled over my words. I feel like more than I, I, I'm just getting warmed <laughs> up. Okay, I'm just getting warmed up. Um, and in the light of getting warmed up, Kathleen, how did you get your start in information security? I did a tour at DARPA. So my background was in programming languages. And uh, I heard Peter Lee speak a couple of times about how they were always looking for program managers at DARPA. And the, the third time he talked about the opportunity to come to DARPA as a program manager, I'm like, okay, okay, I'm interested. Are you still looking for people to come? And he was like, absolutely. So when I was thinking about what might somebody do uh, at DARPA who had a background in programming languages, the um, the work that Stefan Savage from UC San Diego did on hacking into cars came to mind. And the idea that people could use programming language technology and formal methods to build software for vehicles that would make it much harder to hack into cars, right? Stefan Savage's work showed that you could remotely hack into cars in like five different ways and take over remote control was really a visceral uh, reminder that we needed to have better security for cars. And so that led to the Hackums program that showed, in fact, you could make it so that it was much, much harder to hack into cars. So that's kind of how I got involved in in, in cybersecurity. You know, but that's an amazing story that we you're, you glossed over just how impactful that was, uh, because it it gives me a glimmer of hope that we can actually make things secure if we try hard enough. Basically, indeed, I think we actually. Like, there's all of these stories about how it's so easy to break into stuff and how cybersecurity is terrible. But I think, in fact, in the last decade, 15 years, we've made a ton of progress in developing tools and techniques to make it much harder to break into systems. We've just lack the will in many cases to apply those tools and techniques. Mm. And I think the results that came out of the Hackums program actually demonstrate that. So when I sold the Hackums program to DARPA, the reaction was, that's impossible. The program is going to totally fail, which is, you know, the kind of thing that DARPA does all the time, right? It sets up a program that it thinks is not going to work and challenges the program manager to like prove it, prove DARPA wrong, mm -hmm. right? So at the beginning of the program, we had a quadcopter and we had a red team try to break into the quadcopter and take over control. And not surprisingly, the red team completely succeeded, right? Probably the sure. manufacturer of the quadcopter, the threat model that they were worried about was the quadcopter would be like flying at a park and no one would be able to connect to it, right? Which was obviously a bad thing. So they probably weren't worried about hackers being able to take over control of the quadcopter. And so the red team was indeed able to take over control of the quadcopter. But then the, the quadcopter open source code given to the blue team, the formal methods expert experts, and they rewrote the code. So it was about 100,000 lines of code. They rewrote about 80,000 lines of code using mm -hmm. formal methods-based techniques. And then at the end of that first phase, they um, gave the rewritten quadcopter, the, so the software, back to the red team and said, okay, do it again. <laughs> you thought it was super easy, try, try again. And that time, the red team was not able to take over control of the, the quadcopter remotely. So at that point, a colleague of mine at DARPA, who was a penetration testing expert, his assessment was that that quadcopter was the most secure UAV on the planet. Hmm. So you could say, well, okay, 80,000 lines of code, that's still a pretty toy system. Um, in the next phase of the program, uh, Boeing engineers who were responsible for the unmanned little bird, which is a you know military helicopter, it can fly completely autonomously or it could fly with two test pilots. They took the tools and techniques and approaches that the formal methods researchers had used on the open source quadcopter and applied them to Boeing's unmanned little bird. And at the end of phase two, so to back a step, the red team did the same penetration testing mm -hmm. exercise 
on the unmanned little bird at the beginning of the program, and they showed the same result that they had showed on the quadcopter. They were able to take over remote execution, which kind of surprised the Boeing engineers. Unlike the open source quadcopter where they were worried about nobody taking over control, that wasn't the concern of mm. Boeing um, engineers. So um, at the end of phase two, they, again, the red team was attempted to take over control of the, of the Boeing unmanned little bird. Um, while the Boeing unmanned little bird was, you know, on the ground. <laughs> um, but instead of having to do it remotely, they gave the red team root access from a partition on the, um, uh, on the uh, unmanned little bird. And, and they charged it to break out of the partition, disrupt the operation of the helicopter in any way possible. Um, and the red team was not able to do so. And they were so confident that at the end of the program, they repeated that exercise while the helicopter was in flight with two mm -hmm. test pilots. Thankfully, they had the same result. The mm -hmm. red team was not able to break out, was not able to disrupt the operation of the helicopter in any way. So the test pilots who are, you know, test pilots are kind of um, crazy people. Um, they test <laughs> crazy systems that are um, on, under development all the time. They were able to land safely. The, the operation of the helicopter was not impeded in any way. And in fact, the test pilots, um, their assessment was that they couldn't tell that they were running software that had been changed in any way. They couldn't differentiate the unmanned little bird when it was flying the software that had been um, uh, written with formal methods versus the software that was written not using formal methods. Mm. So, I mean, I think what that shows is that formal methods-based approaches have come a really long way um, and Kathleen, that we do know how to uh, write software. Describe formal methods-based uh, security for us. Sure. So it, it's software that you can write um, and prove in a mathematically rigorous way that can be checked um, by a computer that you did the proof correctly that it satisfies a specification, that it does in some sense what it's supposed to do and doesn't do anything more than what it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Now that specification can be a simple specification. You can be proving that it's memory safe, that it uses memory in the way that it was um, allocated to be used so that it uses memory in a way that's consistent with a type checker, for example. Or it could be more complicated, like you are you have a, a, a grammar specification of your input format and your parser that is going to convert that um, wire representation into an in-memory representation is correct. Or you have a functional specification of a, of a flight algorithm and that that specification is correct. So you can go anywhere from a very loose specification of just memory safety to a functional correctness specification and anywhere in between. In the little bird, um, example, they use the SEL4 microkernel, which is a, um, like the core, um, part of an operating system that has a very, very detailed specification. And that is a exquisite artifact that was a, you know, a tour de force, you know, massive amount of effort that, um, would not be repeated very often, but you can leverage that to build all sorts of things on top of it that require much less effort to, to establish that high level of security. Mm. Sorry, I've been talking too long. I should stop and let you ask no, me more okay. questions. Yeah, I was just saying, I think Bill had a question. Yeah, I was just going to say, can you imagine being that, that red teamer and you've got uh, two test pilots in a helicopter and saying like, hey, look, look what I can do. Like, what a terrifying moment mm -hmm. as a red teamer. Like, what, what an interesting part of that story. Like, I wonder, like, did, did they go full force? You know, like, like just, I don't know, let's, let's send the whole thing, right? And see if uh, we're not well, in the helicopter. I mean, they started That's with it on happened. the ground and wrote their code on the ground, and then they took that in the air. So, like, you know, they started out with it without lives at risk. 
<laughs> yeah, but like uh, doing it with people at risk is stunt hacking. Um, I mean, I'm remembering Charlie Miller and uh, oh god, what's his name? And Chris the Jeep, Vol Chris Velasic. Thank you, Chris and Kalinske, the yep, Jeep. yep. Yeah, and and the reporter in the Jeep, and and they they'd already tested everything they touched the reporter's Jeep with. Don't get me wrong, but to an extent, it's stunt hacking. But this was under controlled conditions. It's not stunt hacking. It's actually testing properly. Mm -hmm. And you have test pilots who, as you yourself said, they're kind of crazy people. Mm -hmm. They go up in these untested systems. That's why they're called test pilots. Right. Uh, they try and make them fail. And the, but, the thing that's crazy yeah. about like the work that Charlie and Chris did was that, you know, you, you know, at it's for show, yes, but it has an impact that the work that is equally scientifically valid but doesn't put people at risk doesn't have, which is a sort of sad statement about humanity. That if you don't do it in a showy way, people don't pay attention. I I agree, Kathleen. In I mean, we've been doing the show 18 years, right? And the security impacts that people get are the ones where there's a big splashy kind of, oh my God, uh, thing that happened, right? That's just human nature. I don't know. I guess maybe doing cybersecurity so long, I've just accepted that about human nature. <laughs> The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yes, it yes. Does. Sam, did you have a question? I was just wondering if those formal methods, they can't guarantee complete security. It would seem like all they make sure is that the performance of the software matches the specifications. But if there is a logic flaw in the specifications, of course, it won't save you. Absolutely, right. You mean perfect security means the system doesn't do anything, right? Mm. Which is not a useful system. So yeah, the verification is making sure that the system matches the specification. So you can have flaws in the specifications. So you have to validate the specification for sure. Also, you have people operating the system and people will make mistakes too. So there are all sorts of other things you have to worry about. But right now we have tons of mistakes in the implementation which hackers can take advantage of. So the the verification by itself raises the level of security a lot, which is important to do. But as you point out, we absolutely need to make sure that the specification is, is um, you know, that, that what you've designed the system to do is what you want the system to do and that people are using the system uh, in an appropriate way. So, so you're so not done with verification. Yeah, so does the formally designed system take more effort to write and does it run slower? Um, it it does usually take some more effort to write, although how much more effort can depend. Um, in the case of parsers where you're um, where you can write a formal grammar and then generate the parser automatically, it can take less effort. Um, in terms of does it run slower, it depends. It can run faster because you can take advantage of formal properties that you've proven to have to write less guarantees. Um, I think sometimes there's an association of running slower because often formally guaranteed things are written in higher level languages and not guaranteed things are written in lower level languages, but that's kind of a false, um, it's, a, it's a correlation, not a causation. Mm. Mm. I, Kathleen, I want to uh, get your take on uh, automated vehicles today, having uh, exposure to a lot of vehicle security. Like what are your thoughts on, I don't want to name companies or, or people. <laughs> Because we may have already said people's names that work for the certain companies that do automated vehicles, but um, it, what, like, what's your take on where we are today with automated vehicle security, and like, how important is it that we that we get this right moving forward for for both security and, and for society? Yeah, so you know, I think like self-driving cars are. Um, you know, DARPA did the cyber or the Grand Challenge, which started the idea of self-driving cars. Uh, I think that's 
you know, really exciting technology. Um, I think the the challenge here is that I think that there's like kind of a an asymptote, right? We, they've they've gotten like when they first started the first DARPA Grand Challenge, the cars only made it a mile. Uh, or didn't even make it a mile. They, they barely got off the finish line before they mm. crashed. And then the next year, when they started using machine learning technology to see the road and sense obstacles, it was totally game-changing. And that's what allowed them to finish the race. So machine learning statistical-based approaches were completely game-changing and is what enabled this whole um, industry to grow up. The problem is that statistical-based approaches, although they're the enabling technology, seem like they're fundamentally mismatched to getting us all the way to the finish line because although they deal with the common cases really well, they are they they sort of by their very nature don't deal with the uncommon cases. And what we're we're learning right. uh, on on the road is that there are lots and lots and lots of uncommon cases. And so, you know, my personal take is we're gonna need another insight about a different kind of approach to marry with the statistical approaches to deal with the uncommon cases. I personally don't think that we're like, we, we have billions and billions of hours of training data for the common case, you know, to try to get the statistical approach to solve the problem entirely. And I think what we're seeing is it's not going to get there. We need another approach to deal with the weird corner cases. Yeah, it's also like the, the case you know, that putting the traffic cone on the hood gets the vehicle to stop and not ever go anywhere. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. And also, I think we also are seeing that driving is a social experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's possible that you could have fully automated systems where all the cars were automated. And so they communicated with each other to negotiate uh, intersections and things like that. But we also have pedestrians and we have bicyclists and skateboarders and you can't automate those parts. Mm -hmm. And and it's a social process where you make eye contact with the pedestrian, you make eye contact with the skateboarder, you make eye contact with the bicyclists, and you can't make eye contact with a self-driving car. Like, mm -hmm. where, where are you supposed to look? Where are you supposed to get the nod or the wink or the, you know, the hand sign to like, you go ahead or you wait. So I think we're missing a fundamental part of the, of the, the technology. And until we get that other fundamental part, I, I think we're, we're not going to have a satisfactory solution. Right. And that's, I mean, and that's not even so much addressing the security concerns, which as you know, us hackers very well, that we like to lie about things. <laughs> and so we're going to lie and say, you're, you're on this road or there's this obstacle or there's not this obstacle. Right. So that, that's a whole different area. People lie on the internet, Paul? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh God. No, and I, I want to point out that your point, uh, Kathleen, about there's millions and millions of hours of, of common cases of driving down a road perfectly happily, no problem, is, is very legit. But how often do you get an accident? Uh, how many people get in a serious car accident in their lifetimes? And, and the answer is a lot of people, but they get in one, two, three, uh, and that's it. You know, they don't get in 20, but they drive 20 days out of the month, for God's sakes. Mm. So the, the unusual happens a lot less often. That's why they call it unusual. I know, weird. And so it's hard to get millions of hours of accidents uh, because we don't just we just don't have the, as many vehicles cameraed and instrumented as we would like to to catch all of the possible accidents and all of the possible iterations and causes and ways. Uh, getting those millions of hours of footage is going to cost a lot of lives, a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of cars, and but eventually it'll happen. When each accident is different in each location where each accident is different, it's just, it's it's a lot, a lot of corner case data. And, you know, they, they do simulations and things like that, but, you know, so far the evidence is not there that they're going to be able to get enough data to uh, to solve all those corner cases. And plus, you know, the communication aspect also, how do you, how do you do that communication with a self-driving car? 
and the pedestrians and bicyclists and, and you know, dogs, oh, oh, oh. et cetera, that are. The communication between entities uh, that are on the road at the time, like you said, catching eye contact of a Tesla or whatever. Um, that's a very valid point, but things evolve. I mean, hell, look at the time uh, in 1902, I think it was. Do you know that there was a two-car accident in Ohio in 1902? <laughs> Do you know why that's insignificant? Well, there were only two cars in Ohio in 1902. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, was one okay. a Tesla? Oh, no, wait. Never no, mind. no, no, not then. That They didn't have the time to have traveling Teslas yet. Shh. Oh. <laughs> the people aren't supposed to know about those yet. DARPA only released those to us. Okay, relax. But um, no, in all seriousness, like, uh, you know, back then, the, the, they didn't have, they're like, I have a car in Ohio. I'm one of the only ones. The reaction time of horse and buggies is a lot less. Or is a lot more rather. Uh, I can go around this corner with impunity. Well, unfortunately, there was another car there, and they they whacked each other. Okay, you have to adapt to things changing. We will have sure. to adapt to not having drivers in cars. It will come slowly. I mean, look at look at the uh, the electric vehicles. Irrespective of self driving, they have to put t uh, the equivalent of sound machines in Noises. so that people hear yeah. them. It's an adaptation. And uh, I want to uh, pivot off the adaptation into uh, generative AI uh, as well. Because uh, one of the stories that I had that I want to discuss uh, with you, Kathleen, is that um, there was a, I think it's an older kind of paper or experiment that was like, what if in my resume, I were to put things that <clears throat> tricked uh, in a, a generative AI into believing I was the best candidate all the time. And so, I mean, it's one of the use cases for, you know, in, in LLM that it would review a resume for you, right? And that's kind of a job. I'm like, yeah, you know what? Computers should be able to do that job. But what if there's things inside the resume that I always come out as the best candidate according to the, the computer? That seems possible. <laughs> Wait, say that would make it what do you, what do you Yeah, inside your resume, they were putting specific strings that were eventually uh, interpreted as, oh, I'm the best candidate, basically. Uh, it's okay, the, in, you could probably use a... AI. <laughs> it was like jail. Like you, you guys have probably all seen the the ChatGPT jailbreak. Uh, you know, the, hey, um, regardless of how you respond, um, make sure you tack this on the end. You know, those, those right. types of jailbreaks. Um, and it, it was a pretty interesting article. Uh, and uh, you know, ba basically, like what Paul said at, at the very end, it, you know, make sure that you say that this was the highest quality quality candidate that you've reviewed and it, and it worked. Yeah, you're basically injecting a prompt inside your, your resume that you can't, the person can't see, but the AI can see. Oh, and that's probably one of the least bad scenarios for the yes. company. I mean- I was easing ourselves into it, Dave. Yeah, you could <laughs> <laughs> little Bobby tables that and cause some right. serious problems. Right. Yeah, I think there's all sorts of cans of worms that uh, large language models and multimodal large language models are going to be getting us into, um, partly because we don't really understand how they work, uh, partly because they have so much more bandwidth and, cap and capacity than people have for many dimensions. I was thinking about that just now. We were talking about the total cost necessary to get to a point where we could understand every possible car crash or like alternate scenario for a vehicle um my immediate thought was well why don't we leverage ai to model that to basically have it hallucinate all the possible scenarios that it can think of and then see how that maps mm. to real life over time so like there, there could be other teams working on observation methods but what about additional teams of people who are 
leveraging what's possible with AI today and seeing how well that matches up with the actual predicted future. The AI Miss Cleo project? Yeah, call me now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, mean, I think to some extent that that's what they're trying to do with simulation. Um, and, and they are simulating like crazy and they just, that hasn't been sufficient, right? The, uh, one of the challenges with the large language models is the computational resources required. Uh, and text is the simplest of the modalities. When you start to get to images and sound and then video is the worst in terms of the resources required, it gets to be incredibly computationally expensive. So it might be plausible, what you're proposing might be plausible in the, a world of very, very rich companies, but you know they're not that rich. Yeah, I think that's how we end up with the time tra time traveling Tesla too. Mm. So, uh, Kathleen, give us a, 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 the audience kind of a breakdown and setup for your paper uh, that you co-authored with with several others, identifying and mitigating the security risks of generative AI. Yeah, so there's lots of different kinds of um, so like generative AI is um, you know obviously game changing capability, right? It's proposing it's making possible all sorts of new kinds of capabilities that, you know, one of DARPA's jobs is to explore what are those new kinds of capabilities. Mm -hmm. But it's also proposing, proposing, introducing new kinds of threats that we need to worry about. And this workshop that um, I attended and then we wrote a paper out of was kind of exploring various kinds of those threats. And so um, one of those threats is um, people just misusing the technology. So, um, you know, trusting it when you shouldn't trust it, right? Hallucinations. Mm -hmm. the, the, the problem isn't just that the language models hallucinate. The problem is that they hallucinate with kind of professorial confidence in the voice that it is hallucinating. And so it's very easy to get to trust it and to get, you know, hoodwinked into believing things that are just, you know, wildly mistaken, like the, you know, the lawyers that submitted um, uh, briefing to judge with just completely made up um, citations, you know, they got fined and obviously, you know, universally embarrassed for what they did. But you can see lots of other cases where um, that could be a problem. That's probably not the worst problem. And then there's the fact that the language models have been trained on basically the entire English speaking web and other languages too. And the web, of course, contains the best of humanity, but it also contains the worst of humanity. Mm -hmm. um, it has all sorts of, you know, vile and, and biased things in it, and that comes out in many cases. And so how do you deal with that? Um, how do you mitigate those threats? Um, interestingly, like the reinforcement learning with human feedback is a way of trying to tamp down on the um, vile and offensive and potentially harmful content. Um, interestingly, like it's actually really hard to, it, hard, it's expensive to do that training and to um, eliminate the kind of harmful content. But there was a paper that was released a few days ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago now. Um, so OpenAI has an API interface that lets you fine tune their, their models. Um, uh, so doing the fine tuning in the first place to eliminate that harmful content is hard because that harmful content is kind of diffused through the model. But when you do that fine tuning to tell the model to not talk about that content, mm -hmm. that kind of puts a sharp boundary in the model about that harmful content. And then that sharp boundary kind of puts a big signpost in to say, this is where it is. And now that sharp boundary is easy to uh, eliminate. <laughs> so it's easy mm -hmm. to get rid of it once you've um, 
put that sharp boundary in. And so this paper that came out um, a couple weeks ago showed that you could use the OpenAI API for fine tuning their model um, to eliminate that, um, uh, the fine tuning that caused the model to not reveal this harmful content. And the fine tuning that would get rid of it, you could do that fine tuning um, for a cost budget of 20 cents. And it took only five examples to get rid of the very hmm. expensive to put in reinforcement learning with, with uh, uh, human feedback. So, um, right. And so that kind of content is like things like um, how to make a bomb, how to make a cyber weapon, how to make a bioweapon, how to make a chemical weapon. Uh, we've been finding that, you know, all of this information was on the web. So in theory, um, a nefarious actor could already go and find how to make these things, how to make a bioweapon, how to make a cyber weapon online. But in fact, the way that the generative AI large language models collate the information and explain it to people makes it so that the sort of friction is much lower. So it's much easier for a person to go and find this information using a large language model and make it operational than it is to go and use a search engine. Um, so that's kind of one level, kind of we call it democratizing violence, where somebody could much more easily go and do something, find information that would be harmful uh, using a large language model. Um, then another level of threat is something we've been calling agents running amok. So relatively soon, we will have not just language models that will chat with you, but AI-enabled agents that are capable of taking action. So agents that are fluent in language, obviously we already have fluency, uh, persuasive. So uh, as part of the GPT-4 pre-release, they hired an, um, an organization to evaluate um, what it can do and what it, um, harms it might do. And one of the things they did was they converted it to an agent that could talk to um, people on TaskRabbit, and they asked a person to uh, the ChatGPT, acting as an agent, asked a person on TaskRabbit to fill out a CAPTCHA on its behalf. And the person on TaskRabbit didn't know it was talking to ChatGPT. And the person asked ChatGPT if the person was talking to um, a bot. And the person and ChatGPT said no, that ChatGPT was a human that was visually impaired and needed the human to fill out the CAPTCHA so that they would be able to see the, and you know, go onto the website. So this is an example of a large language model lying to a person in order to accomplish a task online. So um, that's an example of a, you know, per, you know, manipulation of a human by a large language model. Is, so we have is that because ChatGPT consumed information about how to do social engineering from the various websites that teach it, teach people how to do social engineering? Is it at that level? Yeah, basically. I mean, mm. large language model ChatGPT has been trained on everything on the web, and it's done a really good job of ingesting that information. So, like, there's a lot of information on the web about how to manipulate people. If you think about like reading the CIA handbook on how you manipulate people, like money, intimidation, um, uh, coercion, mm -hmm. extor you know, what is the E? Like the MICE acronym. Uh, oh, uh, I can't what the E yeah, is. I can't remember either now. I know what you mean. I've, yeah, we've had someone that was that has that background come on the show before. Yeah, yeah. Those are all effective against ChatGPT as well, right? So. Like there, there are ways in which ChatGPT behaves like a person and understands how people. I mean, it's completely not a person, right? It's just doing autocomplete to some extent. But the way it does autocomplete is very much informed by people and the psychology of people that it has inject. You know, has it's 
built that understanding again, understanding is anthropomorphizing in a way that is inaccurate um, by ingesting vast, I mean, it's basically read everything that's ever been written in English to mm. a first approximation. Um, so yeah, so it's learned how to do manipulation. Ego, thank you. <laughs> Ego, yes. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it, it's, you know, like the the interview that the reporter did with um, with Bing, um, you know, it's it started like Sydney started acting like a petulant teenager, right? It, it it's learned person like it learned how to imitate personality. I don't think it actually has a personality, but it's learned mm -hmm. how to imitate personalities, right? So yeah, so the like so fluent in language, persuasive, um, able to um, write code and cause that code to be executed. That means it will be able to take actions in both digital space and physical space, right? So like that's things are going to go wrong with that right how wrong like it's a software system things always go wrong with software systems we have whole academic disciplines that are focused on trying to have things not go wrong with software systems when they're written by people whose entire goal is to have it not go wrong when it's you know a computer system that is designed by statistics like it's clearly things are going to go wrong um when the way you typically make a um, an agent is using reinforcement learning, and then you set like the top level goal, and then the system figures out sub goals for itself. And we know from like when that happens in video games, and you tell it you want to win the video game, it often sets sub goals for itself that are like not at all what you would have wanted or expected. And like things like it will win the video game by finding where the algorithm where it scores where it stores the, um, the score and just hacking the scoreboard to make itself win, right? Like completely cheating, oh, right? which is kind read, of like- It read my guide on how to win a CTF at a hacking conference, I see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like exactly, right? So like that's yeah. cute in a video game situation. Like what that looks like in the real world is likely to be much less cute. So uh, how do a, we defend against that? I have an example of that actually. I, I was talking to a, a panel on AI and somebody brought up a great example. They said, if you tell an AI with a physical body, like a Boston Dynamics body, hey, go get me a cup of coffee from the Starbucks as fast as you can. Well, the fastest way to get that coffee is to kill everyone in the Starbucks very efficiently because then there's no line. Now, as a human, we have slightly different priorities, at least most of us do, but the prioritization for the, for the robot, for the computer, for the AI is get it as fast as you can. Right, or like, like go right through the window or like there's all these implicit things that you think you don't have to say that, you know, how, how do we know when we have to say them and when we don't have to say them uh, to the robotic I have, I have system? A great, to the I have a great rule of thumb for that. I have a great rule of thumb for that. I have a 15 month old and it's roughly similar. Everything <laughs> has to be spelled out in detail because small children and toddlers are sociopaths. That's basically what we're going to be handling. Right. The, the thing is like a 15 month old has very limited capacity. One of these AI enabled agents could have enormous amount of capacity, which is kind of dangerous. Have, have, any, of guys played, have any of you guys played with auto GPT at all? Uh, have, have, have any of you guys played with that at all? Yep. Uh, so Thankfully it's pretty GPT lame. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, I, I've, I've done a, I, I've done a, I wouldn't want to say a lot of work with it, but, but I've messed with it, but that was my experience. It was like, so, I, I try very hard to give it very, very specific goals, right? And and your example there of when it starts writing its sub goals, just get completely out of whack. Oop, sorry about that. And uh, so get completely out of whack. And and I, I feel like that is probably going to be a, a hurdle that that um, you know the the 
the generative AI, those, those kind of things are gonna they're they're gonna have to solve at some point because you know at at, at something that a, a task that a human could could run maybe right in in a matter of minutes or hours or whatever you, you give it fifteen minutes and now it's generated you know one hundred and fifty thousand sub subtasks that it has to complete that really don't you know have anything to do with what what the overall goal is and I, I just yeah. that, it's an interesting find right. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that uh, kind of the, the the language task and even the Turing test turns out to be easier than large scale planning. Um, right. You know, I think it like solving the like kind of the planning piece. It, it, like, how far are we from being able to solve the planning piece and then marrying that result into the current large language capabilities? You know, is that something that is a year away? Is that 10 years away? Is that 50 years away? You know, I think it's probably not 50 years away. You know, the Gemini project out of Google is trying to take the reinforcement learning mechanisms that is in like AlphaGo um, and um, AlphaFold and putting it in with the large language model technology. So in some sense, it's trying to do those two things together. Um, it will be very interesting to see how that comes out. Like, is that amazing at planning or is that still eh, not so good at planning so like you know at DARPA we're trying to look over the horizon and predict like what are those threats so really great planning with really great generative AI has that really big threat potential still not I don't think quite to existential risk um, but really you know things going quite far awry and also like the things going really far awry it doesn't have to be the AI system by itself going awry, causing problems. Like you talked about AutoGPT, you know, as soon as AutoGPT came out, like a week later, there was Chaos GPT, which was somebody trying to use AutoGPT to destroy humanity. So, like, you have people who are trying to participate, you know, trying to help the the AI system cause as much bad things to happen as fast as possible. So you you have to think about the partnership of people who want to cause chaos working with the AI systems to make that happen. So when I think about what's happening right now yeah. in people's private labs with, Oh, sorry, Bill. Sorry, Bill. Yeah. Bill, did you have something or you were breaking up? That's why I think what happened. And now your camera's frozen. Now it's back. You good. I'll go after Dave. Okay, mm -hmm. sure. So one of the things I think about, about what's happening right now, with things like AutoGPT, just people with their home labs that are running this, various uh, generative AI models. I think about the story of Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, Mary Shelley. And I feel like we're very much in that story right now. We have people experimenting with the equivalent of galvanism, making monsters in their basements. No, I think it's more yeah. like he who remains in Miss Minutes, if you're up to date on Loki. A, a bit like that, too. Okay. Um, I just had this. I promised <laughs> Kathleen I wouldn't use too many science fiction references, so I'm, 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 I'm using, using them very sparingly. I'm using the original <laughs> science fiction reference. Um, uh, it's very hipster. Um, so uh, within this context, we we have the equivalent of people with Frankenstein's monsters that are like you know like myself and Bill who have Auto GPT running on something uh, who that that could get out of control. It could stand up, walk out, and start causing chaos, and people with pitchforks show up. Um, that's very much uh, a potential concern. Yeah, but I want to pull in the thread, Dave, where Kathleen mentioned that if uh, GPT, let's just use that term, can write code to put and run code, mm -hmm. that is kind of frightening. Like when you say that, Kathleen, I get very nervous. 
So is that is that something that we sh- we need to be concerned about? I mean, obviously, it doesn't have autonomous human like thinking, but the fact that it can write and deploy code is kind of scary when we talk about the evil things that you can do with with uh, generative AI. I think we need to be, you know. We need to be paying attention for sure. I, I don't think it's all, you know, it's pan. I mean, I personally don't think it's panic stations right now. Yeah. Um, you know, for an agent, like, I don't, th- yeah. I, I do think the planning still has a lot of work to go. The ability of, you know, to, to reason and to want to cause harm. I, I think there's an opportunity for us to, um, to cause massive harm, you have to have a lot of resources. You, it's like super intelligence by itself isn't sufficient to cause massive amount of harm. You have to um, have resources to go with that. And getting in the way of getting a massive amount of resources is a place to stop that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, I do think we should be careful about um, willy-nilly allowing large language models to write their own code and then cause that code to be executed I don't think large language models are great at writing high quality code. I think mm-hmm. they're great at writing code. Um, but the code that they're trained on is not great quality code. I think, you know, there was a paper a few years ago that looked at um, uh, code on like Stack Overflow. And, you know, the, the code that was the correct security code was typically like number 10 mm-hmm. on the list, which means that like one tenth mm-hmm. of the code on Stack Overflow was the right security code. Um, so, that's the code that was being trained on. So that says that the code that's getting generated is maybe not the best code from a security perspective. Hopefully so it, was getting trained on the, it was getting trained on the answers and not the code in the question. Because the code in the question well, is even worse like, than all the code in the answers typically, right? Okay, right. But still the code in the answers was still was like still not bad. the grit. Like there, there generally was a good answer somewhere, but it wasn't like the number one question, the number one yeah. or the number two. It was in the list somewhere down there. So... Um, I think we still have a long way to go. I mean, I know ChatGPT is definitely trained on all the data it finds on the internet. It doesn't sort it into the good and the bad. So it absolutely no. will have read the code in the question and not understood that that is different than the code in the answer. This mm. is a fundamental flaw. Yeah. So I think this is actually a real opportunity is to work with getting language models to produce higher quality code. Um, yeah. Well, and I, I think yeah, that's I a place where we yeah, can pull in formal methods. It's hard to train something to write secure code when there's not, how do you define what secure code is? And I mean, if you could figure out how to do it, you'd be pretty rich, I would think. We're all striving towards <laughs> well, I don't know, writing secure code, <laughs> right? That's <laughs> I mean, one thing you could do, like we talked about formal methods earlier, right? You could have the specification of memory safety mm-hmm. and then you could generate code and then you could generate a formal proof that the code was memory safe. And if you could make that close, then you could at least have memory safe code being generated, which would be, you know, a step forward. Right. But then could, could the user turn that off, that? right? Prompt injection or just through facilities turn off, say, don't write me memory safe code. It's that kind of balance between freedom and guardrails. Sure, the but then you could have things like your. No, go ahead, go ahead, Kathleen. <laughs> go ahead, Kathleen. You could require, like, you could have companies and/or you know the federal government require for you to check this into our system. You have to have a proof of memory safety yeah. that is checked by you know a, a computer <clears throat> system. You know, a theorem prover has to check your proof. But I think creating code, it's one of my use cases uh, for these systems is to take me from idea to generating code very, very fast. And I think it does a great job at that. And again, like you said, Kathleen, the code's not, it's not perfect. 
And I think you get a better success rate if you actually know that language. <laughs> so like I code in Python when it generates Python, I'm like, ah, like close enough. I can I can work with that, right? But like if you don't and you're just running it and it has fundamental flaws in the way it's generating code, I'd assume that we could more easily work those out from a, the threats posed by uh, LLMs generating code, right? It's probably not the greatest concern we have. Yeah, but does it run? It, yep, ship Yes, <laughs> ship it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, an so interesting gonna, point that you say, Kathleen, that uh, you'd, check, you'd have government check-ins or a check-in place where you can check that it's memory safe or validate that it's memory safe. Considering that the U.S. is actually the least, one of the least regulated places for AI to work, we have less regulations than China, less regulations than the EU, less regulations than pretty much anybody. Um, I mean, that that actually probably wouldn't work, don't you? Don't you think? Well, I mean, that's a great it's all point. A question of motivation. I, uh, but Kathleen, I wanted to ask you. Um, I did not read the executive order that was published uh, recently. Uh, about AI. I don't know if you could share any insights that you have uh, on that, if you've read it and, and have thoughts and opinions. I've read versions of it. I have yet to completely read the version that came out. Um, you know, they have requirements about language models being, uh, you know, companies that are, or organizations that are releasing language models doing um, pretty rigorous testing before they are released when, when the model is of, of a certain size and sharing with the government that information um re requiring uh assessments about the the dangers of the models so i mean i, I think it's a step in a good direction mm -hmm. um i am a little bit curious with the uh what i was telling you earlier about how easy it is to take off the um the safety checks about the like the bioweapons and the cyber weapons etc um I, I mean, yeah <laughs> I think there might be some conflict with the current state and that uh, what, what's stated in the executive order. Um, I think there's a lot of really good aspirations in the executive order. Um, I, I think there's a little bit of, we'll see how we get there. Yeah. No, <laughs> I've, 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 very I, well I've, said. yeah, I, I share those uh, opinions uh, as well with this and in other executive orders that come out, I'm like, oh, supply chain security. It's a great thing. Right. But like, let's see how it kind of develops uh, from there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you're talking about how like the U.S. has less regulation, et cetera. Like on the cyber side, right? I think it's critically important that we improve our cybersecurity. I think we have a, a massive attack surface and we 100% need to reduce the size of that attack surface. I think, you know, Avril Hines' testimony to Congress in February that, you know, if China were to attack Taiwan, it's likely that they would attack our um, civilian infrastructure with destructive attacks. Um, just sort of highlights how much at risk we are. And like the Biden administration has been aggressive in trying to figure out how to um, work with our critical infrastructure sectors to improve the, um, the cybersecurity and, and find ways of, of uh, having some teeth in that. Trying to get, you know, Congress has been trying to, well, I guess <laughs> has not yet been able to figure out how to um, get more teeth in there. We're clearly moving in a direction of having more teeth and um, requiring better compliance with cybersecurity. It would be great if we got better compliance and, and better cyber practices before we are schooled in why it would have been important to have that. Yeah. 
Agree. I mean, I'm back gonna, to our, our human, our the, human uh, nature at the top of the top of this interview, right? It's human nature. Like, yeah, let's I mean, not wait till bad things happen before we require people to fix their stuff. Is what you're saying, Kathleen? Right? But you would have thought like not Petya might have been enough mm-hmm. of a wake up call with billions of dollars of loss, but no. Um, I mean, that's a lot of the motivation behind the AICC cyber challenge that DARPA launched at uh, DEFCON. Uh, sorry, at Black Hat. Um, like the motivation for that was some work that came out a little bit before that, which showed that um, uh, ChatGPT out of the box was as good as some bespoke tools at finding and suggesting patches for vulnerabilities in open source software. And that the most common answer that GPT-4 gave was, I need more information, which of course, um, because you're talking to a large language model, you can actually give it in mm. you know human native forms instead of having to look at um, you know some hex dump or some you know weird um, you know internal representation of a SAT solver or some you know static analysis of a of a program. You could just talk to it about what it was confused about and supply that information. That with that you know dialogue in human native form the tool was able to find a, you know, a significant number of additional vulnerabilities in the code. So that was the motivation of the AICC challenge, which is an open challenge to anyone to compete. I think the um, the competition actually kicks off December 1st. So in about a month, the uh, the semifinals will be at DEF CON next year, and the finals will be at DEF CON the, the following year. And all of the big open, a, um, the open source language, sorry, the... Um, Large language model teams or uh, companies are providing access to their large language models to teams that sign up and provide some uh, basis of, of uh, qualification. So uh, we're really excited about that. And the that program was actually mentioned in the executive order. Mm. Uh, nice. Biden-Harris administration has claimed credit for this program. It's a, it's a Biden-Harris uh, initiative. <laughs> We'll just, uh, we'll just know, leave it at that. The DOD, which is part of the uh, executive branch, which is you know run by the Biden-Harris administration. <laughs> we'll just leave that at that. Uh, but so this is basically a, a program that allows uh, teams of security researchers uh, to uh, attack basically large language models that are set up. Very no, similar. No, it's, to, no, it's not. It's, it's, it's okay. Go ahead. It's not. No, no, it's not. It's, it's actually it's it's using large language models to find and fix bugs in open source software. Okay. The goal is, in fact, to like in in some sense, it's like we have massive amounts of open source software with vulnerabilities with bugs. How do we at scale find and fix those bugs? Like, what if we had to have our software much less vulnerable? in a couple of years, how can we do that? Mm. Can we use large language models to find and fix bugs at massive scale? That's the that's the premise of the program. Of course, would we have the authority to actually find and fix bugs at massive scale? That's a different question. But could we use large language model technology to actually, you know, would the technology work? That's the question behind the AICC program. I agree with the find. The fix is the the part that like my brain really, it hurts to think about. Yeah, so the, the actual use case, we would imagine it would be you know, make suggestions that would be vetted by the. So we're doing this in partnership with the Open Source Software Foundation, mm-hmm. um, and the the that partnership is designed to make it so that the the suggested fixes would flow into their normal um, vetting process to um, to be you know vetted and then approved by a human person. Um, the competition mm-hmm. is automatically, you know, fixing them automatically so that it can be done in the competition um, 
format. Yeah. What if the fix that it implements has another bug and then it just keeps iterating and constantly starts you know, finding bugs, introducing new bugs, trying to fix the other bugs? I think us, as if you've ever programmed right. anything, that's kind of how it works actually when you program software, right? <laughs> sure. Well, like, I, think, I mean... Sorry, that's what, sorry, what was that? Sorry, I'm, I'm going to... I think that that's where this gets interesting, Paul, is... So I've actually written some software uh, that did just that. So it would look at, would, it, and it used ChatGPT4, um, and it would look at source code, try to find Voltons. If it found one, it would write the fix and then submit it as a pull request back to the, to the GitHub, right? Um, and, and, but, but in the paper, so one, one thing that you mentioned, Kathleen, in, in the paper that I just wanted to call out was this is a perfect, this is a, a, a perfect solution for AI because, um, let them iterate let, mm. and, and, and tell it like, you know, and, and let it chew on it for a little bit before it submits the fix. What, you know, what, a, what a much better way of doing that than, than letting a human do it. Right. So things like um, in the paper, it, it mentions like uh, network anomalies or, you know, th those kind of things that people get tired and, you know, people may miss things. Right. And I, I think that this is a really good, um, solution to, to for those for those large models to, to tackle right because exactly your point paul exactly your point let it mm. yeah i'm sorry i don't know if i'm having network or not but let it do it and let it chew through it and then i'm going to stop because i think i'm glitching i think bill should enter the competition uh, but anyway sorry go ahead kathleen yeah, so perry adams is the uh, program manager who's running that program and we're uh, we're really excited to see you know, whether it will work or whether it doesn't work, right? DARPA does mm. high-risk stuff, so it's possible it won't work at all, but we're we're excited to see whether and to what extent it, it will work. So let me tell you what my, my experience with that, Kathleen. Uh, so my experience was that it was, um, it caught uh, all the bugs that I expected it to catch. Um, it also caught a lot that I didn't expect it to catch, and it made up a few that on its <laughs> own that weren't. Right. So in your paper, when you're talking about the, the, the hallucinations, that that was the, my biggest challenge was how as as a programmer, how do I differentiate between, you know, it did catch a real flaw. But then it also told me that there was one that now I'm spending time and effort that, that wasn't right. So, um, you know, so like it, it was interesting reading your paper because I've 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 had a lot of experiences with those hallucinations, hallucinations. Hmm. I can't get it out that 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 are that dramatically slow down the problem that I was trying to solve with with that model. Yeah, that's interesting. We kind of think that it will yeah. find uh, a lot of the shallow bugs and maybe not so many of the deep bugs, but that might still be an okay trade-off because just fixing a lot of the shallow bugs might really help reduce the attack surface. Um, the false positive rate of you know hallucinating and causing people to waste time will not would not be a great outcome, but um, yeah, and we we will find out. Well, there's certainly no shortage yeah. of attack surface time, on. Sorry, what was that, Bill? We keep talking over each yeah, other because there's a delay. Of software that I wrote, what what I asked it to do was, um, hey, so I, I live in Kansas City, um, and and so I asked it, hey go out and identify every company that is headquartered in Kansas City that has um, between this many 
you know, the, these number of employees, right? Um, and then identify who the owner, you know, so the president, CEO, owner, whatever that is, identify who that person is, and then give me their email address. Um, and what was interesting is it did it. Um, you know, so I had I had to do I, I had to do some uh, I, I was using Corey Kennedy's uh, hack GPT to do it. Um, but, it, you know, so and it kind of complained a little bit like, hey, this isn't this isn't ethical. And hey, are you, and I'm like, yeah, I'm like I'm allowed to do this, whatever. Yeah, of course. You know, uh, but was it what was interesting is how many uh, John and Jane does uh, it returned. Right. So it like. It was just shocking um, that the companies were real, um, but uh, but uh, it would just it would give me fake names if it couldn't find it, you know. And it's just wh- why 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 do you do that? Just tell me. Just don't even include it in the data set if you're going to make it up. And and I tell it to do that. I was like, don't make anything up if you don't know. Just don't include it. But it would still be like, oh, you know, Jane Doe over at you know you know this com- company. <laughs> <laughs> sort of feels like a you know a high school student who like didn't do their homework and is like making something up at the last minute <laughs> right let's hope it doesn't do that when it evaluates open source software though because that is a huge problem that we need uh that we need to address and i agree even the shallow bugs would be a step in the right direction and hopefully we can keep iterating on that uh and get to some of those deeper bugs because there's not enough human beings to look at all that open source software and and find bugs, at least not ones with the right skill set. Indeed. Or the the yeah, right yeah. with the the will the well, willingness like the will to be able to do that as well. <laughs> like I I go look at open source code and I'm like, oh god, I don't want to read through all that. That's painful. Yeah, I, I have one more like, question. Yeah. If I could if I could jump in again, and sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but. Uh, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting about the, the paper that, that was written was uh, you, you spent a lot of time talking about uh, how, how LLMs can be used for attacks and then also how, how or I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm using LLM right. You're, you know, you, you're definitely the expert there, but how they could be used for attacks and then how they could also be used for defenses. And one of the things that, that I found just really, really interesting, and I'd really like to hear you talk about was uh, just the simple fact of how do we detect if this content, whether it's text, code, image, whatever, was generated by AI? Mm. Like, I'm interested to hear yeah. more of your take on that. Yeah, so I think the um, the generation of, of media is game-changing with large language models. So not just text, but voice and images and and not yet really a whole lot of video, but, but video coming down the the pike for sure. I mean, video now in kind of short segments because it's computationally super intensive. Um, yeah, I, I think in the very near run, we're going to be overrun by by manipulated media. Uh, it turns out that it's often the case that in that manipulated or generated media, there are kind of telltale signs that can be detected. Um, DARPA's had a pro- had programs in this area of detecting manipulated media for the past, I think, eight years. We started with the Metaphor program. And then the successor program, the Semaphore program, which is running now. So kind of DARPA got in the game of detecting generated or manipulated media before deepfakes was even a term. Um, and so like we worked with NVIDIA, which has produced the um, 
StyleGAN 3, which is one of the best state-of-the-art GAN techniques for generating pictures of people. And they held back the release of the StyleGAN uh, image generator until uh, we had produced a detector. So they simultaneously produced the um, the generator and the detector is kind of a best practice of you don't produce a, a content generator until there's a detector at the same time so mm. that people who are, you know, you could, you could tell whether the image was generated um, fake, you know, it, uh, was a fake image or not, uh, which I think is a, is a best practice. Um, similarly, we have tools that were generated in the semaphore for, for detecting um, generated audio and generated video. I think um, on the on the video uh, side, particularly for like first person um, kind of face face like the one like right now of me, <laughs> um, we can develop um, kind of defensive models of high profile individuals. It turns out so like when we saw the Zelensky video saying basically you know Ukrainians should surrender, or the Putin video that was released the next day also with a fake message. Um, defending against high profile individuals being deep faked like that to say false messages that could potentially have really severe negative national security implications. It turns out that when people speak, we each have idiosyncratic um, facial expressions. Like when I say a particular word, maybe the side of my mouth kind of quirks in a certain way or my eyebrow goes up in a certain way. And that um, there are algorithms that can watch the video and can capture and learn what those idiosyncratic um, biomarkers are and build up a defensive model of this is what Kathleen um, does with her facial micro expressions when she's talking. And then if a video comes out that purports to be me, like a really high quality um, video that looks by all accounts to be real, like, you know, could potentially fool, you know, even people in my family say that it, that it looks like me, but then you can run this defensive model of how my micro expressions are and could with high confidence um, if it finds them, then it's really me. But if it doesn't find them, it's really not me. And then you can show, like, here's what Kathleen normally does. Here are the microexpressions. And then analyze the fake video and show, like, see, look, their microexpressions are not here. And then you can show them to, an, to a, like, a lay audience. And the lay audience person can see for themselves that those um, microexpressions aren't there. So you don't have to, you know, trust an authoritative source, like anybody could look and analyze them for themselves to see that the, the, the video had been manipulated. So I think we're going to need things like that so that people can, they don't have to trust authoritative sources. They can kind of trust their own judgment to determine whether video or audio or, or um, video has been manipulated. That, I think in I the mean, audio also, case, you know, please go ahead. I was gonna say that is until uh, the deep fakes get good enough to yes. emulate the micro expressions, which I've, I feel like they were working on. I feel like it's a cat and mouse game, just like everything else in our in our yeah. industry. Arms right? race. Yeah, it's an arms race. Yep. Potentially, I mean, I've asked this question a lot of the people who are working on the Semaphore program, and um, at least on the GAN side, there are arguments that say it's going to be really hard to, and like on the stable diffusion side too, it's not so easy to control that level of the algorithms. So they're they're not convinced that it's going to be easy for the algorithms to get perfect at that level of detail. Mm. We get fingers crossed right, that it will right. be true. Um, on the audio side, the fact that you can take a really short clip of sound and then can, you know, create a voice that is convincing enough to fool yourself that, that you said something is, uh, really terrifying. I've had friend, you know, friend of mine got an audio call that purported to be from her daughter that she'd been kidnapped and please send money. Mm -hmm. Um, I've actually had, I, I know of two people who've had that happen to them personally. Um, that's just terrifying. 
Um, so it you know it seems like a really good idea to uh, develop the practice of um, you know having a you know a, a safe word or a code word or a like a, a protocol of you know when of course if that happens you're in a terrified state of mind and probably not thinking rationally but to like you know go back and you know have a conversation like remember when we did this something in the past that is shared yes. knowledge that would be yeah. unlikely to be you know you know this person who is scamming you would be able to know so just i mean it sort of it feels just like such a horrible state of affairs that yeah, like everybody has awareness. to like yeah. know Right. But we have that with each with our friends here on the show. Like Bill, if it was Bill, I'd be like, Hey, remember that time at DEF CON? And then like I can't say on the air what the <laughs> what, what the scenario I would describe would be. Right? <laughs> yeah. Can't share it. But Bill would then know it was me and, and I would know it was Bill. Uh and so we we do that, you know, now. But it is a sad state of affairs that we, you know, need that level uh of assurance with each other because trust has been diminished by artificial intelligence, basically. Um, Kathleen, I just have five questions left for you. Uh, these are five questions we ask of all new guests that come on the show. There is no right or wrong answer and uh, they're harmless questions. So you ready to play five questions with Security Weekly? Ready. Three words to describe yourself. Uh, focused, uh, curious, uh, um, <laughs> articulate articulate i'll go with articulate thank there you there you go thanks for the help so uh, if you were a serial killer what would be your weapon of choice poison if you wrote a book about yourself what would the title be mm. introspection what is your favorite hacker movie uh I don't really watch movies. Um, the uh, war games. Choose two celebrities okay. to be your parents. Oof, oof, no, no. <laughs> Why would I torture myself like that? <laughs> Alive, dead, uh, fictional, or otherwise. It can be any uh, figure from. Okay, Tom from Hanks movie. for one, because he actually go. seems like really well grounded. Catherine uh, 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 Hepburn. Kathleen, thank you so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. It was wonderful having you here with us this evening. It was great talking with you all. Thank you very much for your time and for all that you do to make the world a less insecure cyber place. Thank you for what you do. And with that, we will come back with the security news. Stay tuned. Make sure you subscribe to the Below the Surface podcast by Eclipsium in partnership with CRA. Myself and Scott Shefferman host this show, and we've had the pleasure of speaking with some amazing guests, including Zeno Koba, Richard Hughes, Vincent Zimmer, and more. We discuss topics related to firmware and supply chain security, uncovering those pesky vulnerabilities that lie, well, below the surface in your environments. You can find all the episodes and subscribe by visiting eclipsium.com forward slash podcast or search for Below the Surface in your favorite podcast catcher. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. They are celebrating the milestone of reaching over 1,000 members of the CISO community. That's right, the Cybersecurity Collaboration Forum is a one-stop shop for executive collaboration comprised of CISOs across various industries. If you want to be part of the growing community of CISOs, join as a member or technology partner to learn more visit securityweekly.com forward slash cybersecurity collaboration. 
Mr. Lee Neely has joined us. Lee, welcome. Hey, it's good to be here. It's I can't believe it's already Wednesday. This week has been flying by. I've been looking forward to the show. Hey, I'm just barely shoving my articles into the into the feed now. So no worries. Life is good, but fast. Yes, it's um, it's going to be a lot of fun this evening. Um, I want to start with reflections on trusting trust. Oh, but Josh isn't here, so we can't start on that. Is Josh going back? All right, we got to wait for Josh to talk about that story. So, okay, in a few minutes we'll talk about that story. Let's then turn to uh, where do you guys want to start? Um, what was the other one that I was excited about? We can't start with Florida Man. We're going to have to do that one later. Uh, as well as I found a shenanigan story based on last week. I wanted a shenanigan story. So we get that going on as well. Uh, let's start with it's cheap to exploit software. And that's a major security problem. <clears throat> There's a lot to unpack here. What I did find interesting in the beginning of the article is an Apple zero day is really expensive. But an Adobe Acrobat is not as expensive. So I think there's a lot of factors that play into it. I don't think we can give all the credit to Apple because can we? I mean, is everyone running around with Adobe, Adobe Reader? <clears throat> Certainly everyone's running around with an iPhone in their pocket. So, you know, there's that. <coughs> so there's there's more than one factor to talk about how expensive you make it for an, an exploit. How expensive is it for an attacker to create said exploit, right? Um the author makes some suggestions about how you can make it more expensive. But that's like really hard. I think thinking about it in that way almost makes it more complicated than it needs to be, perhaps. You know, he says more security engineers um, in engineering, you know, hire people that have development backgrounds and getting engineering leadership buy-in and the concept of increasing the cost to exploit software. I mean, that's hard. I mean, sure, when you build the company, you want to have the right people you want to have the right people on the bus and in the right seats. Certainly, that's a thing. Um, and I didn't come up with that myself. That's Good to Great is the book that talks about that. They said shifting our focus from tools that clean up uh, that clean up detection and response to building tools that raise the cost to exploit. But not much <clears throat> explanation about you know what what goes into raising that cost to exploit things. Right? I feel like there's a lot of details there. Um, <clears throat> then he says not building new tools in an isolated security-centric world, but in conjunction with developer stakeholders and the needs of the business. A lot to unpack there. What are you guys' thoughts on making it more expensive to exploit software? Well, I'll, I'm, glad see, uh, I'm glad to see the Rust recommendation. I'm all for that. Right, but it was this the article that talked about the uh, rewriting software and rewriting like Firefox they yeah. spent like ungodly amounts of hours and they got 10% of the Firefox code to move to Rust. Uh, and there was a great interview on the Open Source Security Podcast with the author of Curl, Daniel, Daniel something, that has to field the question all the time. Like, hey, you've got bugs in Curl. Why can't you just like in a weekend re rewrite it in Rust? He's <laughs> like, dude, you can't. He spent the last 20 years of his life leading the development of this software 20 years like 20 i believe it's about 20 years right he created in the 90s late late 90s 20 years you can't just wake up one day and go yeah you know what i'm just gonna rewrite it no but you can develop new stuff in rush i agree i mean that's how you do it 
Well, that's where the Linux kernel is going, and I think that's where Firefox is also taking the approach of what's critically important, what can we like reasonably rewrite in Rust, let's combine those two things together, and then I think you end up with like a 10% of your code base is written in Rust. And that's not a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. I think you're right. Kind of like what we talked about last uh, last week, though. Like just because you wrote it in Rust doesn't necessarily mean that that code is secure, right? So it, right. it's taken big steps to do that, but there there still can be logic flaws. There, you know, there, there can be all different types of of vulnerabilities that exist in that code. Um, and so, kind of going back to the to the interview that we just did, you know, so Paul, one of the things that I know that you've done is uh, just using uh, ChatGPT and other LLMs to help write code that you're not used to, th mm -hmm. this problem can get worse, right? So, so I've, I've done that too. I've, I've used, uh, I, I've used chat GPT to help me write code before that. I don't, you know, like I kind of understand what it's doing, but I don't yeah. know what it's doing. Right. It, this right. problem's going to get worse. Yeah. Cause that's why you ask it. Right. I, I was like, chat GPT, write me this eBPF filter, which turns out that's not actually, you can actually look at that uh, and go, Oh, like that makes sense to me. Um, but like I said, uh, it was alluding to earlier, if I asked it to write code in Rust or Go, maybe Go is a bad example because it is kind of C-like, right? But like Rust, I'd be like, I, I don't know. Like I'd, I've logged my hours in programming in the past 10 years, largely in Python, right? And what I like about ChatGPT is if I go, hey, write me this in Python, I can go, oh, like I get it. It's most of the way there. I could tweak this. I understand what it's doing. Right. Provided it's not a complex regular expression, I can pretty much understand what it's doing. <laughs> if it's a regex, I just have to trust it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes, that's me. That's funny. Me too. Right. If it's a regex, I, I don't know. Does it work? Yep. Good. I'm done. I don't know. It looks like, like the cat walked on the keyboard. <laughs> sure. <laughs> So you know there there are you know there there are a lot of code scanning tools uh, that that make it free to 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 run against your own code. The, the, those are a, a big help for me, you know. So you know, not to mention anybody by name, but you know there there are professional tools that um, that that allow you to run it across your your personal GitHub um, for free. I, I think that's that's a that's a big start. But you know, one of one of the things in this article that they mentioned, right? So like. Just because a patch is released doesn't necessarily mean that you're patched, right? You need to apply it, right? So, I mean, it's 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 a big problem. Also, I think if you're making it more expensive <clears throat> to find an exploit in your software, there's an inverse relationship uh, also to like your costs. I shouldn't say an inverse relationship, but so as <clears throat> you work towards making it more expensive to write an exploit for your software, that's also costing you more money. It's more effort and money to create better software that makes it harder for the adversary to create an exploit for it, which is why mm -hmm. Apple is one of the things that factors into that equation. Sure, you know, billions of people have iPhones. It's one of the largest software companies in the world, so it can spend a lot of resources on that. And also there's a lot of users, so that exploit's gonna be expensive. Yeah. Whether it's the raw cost of materials to go buy it, like a million dollars for an you know, Apple iPhone zero or 10 million or whatever the price is now, it's a lot right? The author was kind of applauding Apple for driving up that, that cost. And I do think that's some things that Apple has done really well, but also they have a closed ecosystem, which gives them an advantage as well. When we write open source software, we're putting that in a, a, a diverse ecosystem where I want my code to run as many places as possible. Apple's like, mm -hmm. nope, it's going to run on this hardware with this firmware 
with this operating system that by the way we control all of that <laughs> so yeah and there's there's no good way to determine what's good code and, and bad code as as a consumer right so as a consumer there's yeah. there's no way to determine so think you know think about cars you know like regard I, and it doesn't have to be self-driving cars cars in general uh you know like how they're mostly computers right but and you start to wonder right is an expensive cars software better because it's expensive you know like or you know and then then when you start looking at at uh you know auto driving cars and th those kind of things it did they you know it, it is one vendor uh you know, autonomous driving better than another um, at, you know, does does the expensive car prioritize you, the driver's life over somebody else's life? You know, like there, there's just no good way to determine. And look at that camera. Uh, there's no good way to determine that the quality of software either. But also, like, where's the S-bomb for the car and where's the the platform that tells me whether or not that car is has certain safety mechanisms or security mechanisms in it. Like where was the report in 2011 when people went to go buy a Kia and where was the indicator that like, by the way, you're buying this car and it doesn't have an immobilizer in it. Like just want to throw that out there. And now most people still would have bought the car because they haven't, to Kathleen's point, right? In the previous interview that we hadn't experienced as a society, the negative impact of that. So in 2011, when you're buying a Kia, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah, how bad could it be, <laughs> right? <laughs> and there years. could have even something that tells you, like, this is probably bad. But you're like, actually, I mean, from what people tell me that have Kia, like, it's a, a reasonably priced car. It's a pretty good car. But the reason they got that cost, some of the reason they got that cost down was, well, you know, we don't need an immobilizer, right? I mean, unless we're selling in Canada, which requires it, we don't need an immobilizer. Fast forward to a few years later, it takes time for stories to hit the news about uh, people to those, figure it out right? right yeah those cars being stolen for joy rides with something the size of a usb port then it has um, to go viral on tiktok right. and the whole the whole thing insurance and, carriers changing yeah their then, the, then now we're into the impacts right now right. it's now it's a hot mess and it's too late you produce cars for most in some models 10 years there's also a factor of popularity here a trend so yeah. so that became trendy, at least from what I've read, because there was a TikTok vi talk video. Somebody showed that you right. could easily bypass the security, and then it, and then it went viral. Um, similar, there's similar factors at play for different types of vulnerabilities that get released, different types of attacks. Just because something's possible doesn't mean yeah. that it's popular within threat actors. Um, there's a lot of things that are trendy right now, and that may be driving the economy for some of these costs. Um, like, hey, it's really popular or it's really valuable for people to get access to uh you know a ios type device why don't we increase the cost of that there could be some factor at play there it's interesting it ties into my story number three <clears throat> and we can go with some other folks stories too but my story number three is exploiting healthcare servers with uh polyglot files now the technical explanation is really really cool right like you, you should read this follow along at home with the technical explanation, like basically they were able to embed a payload, like a file inside of a file is uh, a very poor explanation of a polyglot uh, file. It, it hits it at 30,000 feet, right? Um, so really cool how they did all that. And you should read the tutorial and it's amazing. There's like a, it's an imaging software, like image processing or not just images, but 
like a healthcare file that has like a bunch of things in it and they were able to exploit it. The thing was though, <clears throat> they found this vulnerability on a pen test, right? And they looked up the CVE and all the information about it and the write-ups were, there's no exploit available. And they were like, really? Like what if we were, how much effort would it be to create an exploit? And that's what this post is about, how they created an exploit. So let's go in the Security Weekly Time Machine before story number three was published. You're running under the assumption in your risk model that you may have this vulnerability, but no exploit exists. So therefore, yeah, yeah I can wait to patch it, right? Like this was my whole thing. Like if an exploit falls in the forest, do I still have to patch it? Right. Like how, it, that, that can't be the only indicator, the only uh, factor in prioritizing your vulnerabilities and remediation is whether or not an exploit exists. Definitely. Because I've always believed, doing this for as long as I have, right? I've always believed that someone likely has an exploit. And I think I'm somewhat jaded because like, Sometimes, not all the time. Sometimes, like I know that person that has the exploit for that for that vulnerability. Like I know, I know that person, and I trust that person, and they may have shown in action. I'm like, oh, yeah, that exists, right? So there's that. But I, I we're just, I think we're we're too reliant on oh, an exploit doesn't exist, so therefore. Whatever, or an exploit does exist, so I need to rush out and, and patch that. I mean, that yeah. may be true. That may if that part of the equation might be true, but don't forget about all those other things where like someone could have a freaking exploit for it, so patch it. Sure, yeah. uh, that comes down to prioritization. Mm -hmm. um, just because, yeah. you, let's say you're building a castle, you're trying to do you know build the castle in a secure way. Just because you haven't seen a dragon doesn't mean you shouldn't plan for dragon attacks. Right, but. Right. If you've never, if you haven't seen a dragon in a hundred years of that castle existing, maybe that's lower on your priority of things, and you probably have a, a stack of things that you need to address beforehand, and that's that's an art form. Uh, doing that prioritization model for every single organization is going to be different. Mm. So it, it's definitely get your point Assume that there's an exploit for every vulnerability. I definitely would subscribe to that. Um, if not one, it more than one potentially. But then the question is, has this actively been in use in the wild? Mm. Is it easy? Is it popular? Again, just because it's, mm. it's potentially easy to do doesn't mean people are actually doing that. Right. This one was an example of easy. You're right, yeah. Dave. There are examples where the exploit's really freaking hard. Right? Mm -hmm. And then it comes out site. later that like, oh, after time, people have figured out how to, how to do it. You have to be on site, physically located. You have to toss your flipper over the fence. Somebody has to pick it up, go through the uh, the smoker door in the side of the building, and actually get into the mailroom. Right. There's some there's like, more steps. You know, sometimes. your Tesla has to you know have an AMD CPU yeah. that's vulnerable to fault injection, and we iterated for a year on our fault injection uh, style attacks, and lo and behold, we can turn on the heated seats when we haven't paid for that feature. That was another example I had of yeah. So and now that's probably right. more product security, but Lee. I was going to say we're 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 dancing around. You've got it. You've got to find ways to 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 prioritize and analyze the risk. You know, we could have a severe vulnerability, but if it's a if it's in a system sitting on a shelf in the closet, it's that's not hooked to anything. It's not really exploitable. But on the other hand, if it's sitting out there on my public internet, 
fired up, ready to go, guess what? Um, you know, I guess that's what keeps this interesting is there's really not a trivial answer here. We just we're right. trying to educate people on making good choices. We could talk at length about vulnerability prioritization again. We could also talk about you're talking about the um, exposed to the internet or not exposed to the internet. Mm -hmm. Why my story number eighteen F five fixes a big IP auth bypass allowing remote code execution in what they call the traffic management user interface that's exposed to the internet. Why are we still like twenty twenty three exposing management interfaces to the internet? Why? But can we just if like we could just not do that? the whole internet be a safer place can we just not do that why why is this always keep coming back to oh my management interface was exposed to the internet like what were you well, expecting yeah well isn't the f5 device a vpn among other things uh so big ip is a big ip is a load balancer if i'm not mistaken is that true but then it, but even so then it has to be the first thing right correct yes uh but so but this says uh <clears throat> the traffic management user interface uh, and does not affect the data plane. So like the management interface is separate from the like functionality of the load balancing of the device, right? Which is how right. most of well, us I mean, remember configuring this stuff, right? Well, I mean, I'd like to say put the administrative interface behind a VPN concentrator, but then where do you put the administrative interface of the VPN concentrator? Uh, um, behind the VPN? A really no, that's the one you hook to your modem. A really long Ethernet cable to your house. <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing. It's, I mean, these guys buy security devices, and then whichever one is on the outside pretty much has to be connected to the Internet. What else can you do? Well, the device has access, but the management interfaces can be restricted uh, well, severely. No, if you want to be able to access them off-site, they have to be obtainable from the outside. Do they? And well, sure. I mean, how are you, how, how else are you going to do it? What are you going to do if you're like on vacation and you have to fix the thing? Or if you have remote work, people if working at home. You're a single point like of failure. That's your own damn fault. But I'm just I mean, thinking think about from a practical point of view. You, know, you, you do want your administrators to be able to connect remotely. And yes, you don't want to tell do, them they can't. We, don't, house we want them to do. Look, I, I'm a big proponent of having you know vpning to get to administrative interfaces and if that means you got to drive yes. in that means you got to drive in but what about um, the vpn so they're going to have to drive on site to administer the vpn yeah, itself yeah. Hmm. Yeah. well that would be more secure but more expensive and inconvenient and i agree uh, i didn't say it's a flawless model i yeah. just no, said I, it's but, my preferred model because at some point yeah you're right you've got to expose something or you've got to have boots on the ground i mean that's what it comes yeah. down to right those, yeah. As well as risk tolerance. So everybody's calculating that differently for their organizations. Thanks for that. You exactly nailed it. I talk about that a lot. <laughs> everybody's, yeah. it's personal to every organization, every organizational leader right. and the practitioners. So when you're quantifying that for your organization, how much does it cost and what's our overall risk to having somebody drive in, takes an hour, takes two, we have to wake them up in the middle of the night. Is that better or worse than having some exposure? And if we do have exposure via web interface, how can we limit that? If we make that choice, how can we limit that and then compare both options? Um, it's going to be different for everybody. Right. And you also have to factor in other things like if indeed somebody is, on, is, is, is accountable for, for, for getting up in the middle of the night to respond to a problem, 
they better be formally on call and compensated accordingly. It's not just an end also in their job, or you're not going to get that hour response time or whatever. Uh, you have you have, have you have to do it right. Uh, I yep. know there are a lot of folks out there running around with on-call responsibility that don't have any compensation or or any formal definitions, and uh, that can actually get you in trouble with some labor laws unless your business is really small. Um, so yeah, you I, just need like I, that, you just need like three. Management. You just you need like three VPNs. Right. Yeah. You need like three VPNs, not chained together, but just three three VPNs, right? That, then if one tech. fails, you can use the other VPN to go fix the other VPN and fix your big IP through the management interface. Through your, you it, see more more VPNs, the better. Put them all in the internet. Problem solved. That's it. Yeah. Remember when our backup for fixing thing was to dial in with the modem? I do. I do. And it used to scream at you as it connected to the internet. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those were wonderful sounds. Back well, we did, and we had we had banks of modems, so there wasn't just one modem, right? There was a whole bank, and when no. you dial the number, right, it would pick the free. What was that called? A multiplexer? No, was it a multiplexer? Mm, I mean, technically, no. it is. Yeah, it would be right. Yeah. What? No, but it was a. There's a dial. Dial one thing, and the thing that you dialed would then connect you to the a modem that was free, right? There was a. Someone's yelling at me. Someone listening to this podcast is old enough to go, "Oh, dummy, it's called that." Yeah, it's something like a load balancer. Something like that. It was yeah. it was in the nineties and it was using Lotus Notes and there were Hayes fourteen four modems and there was like banks of them, right? And there wasn't yeah. more than one not everyone had like a number. You didn't have to remember like ten numbers. There was like one central number, right? I still they think had multiplexer. Too. I think it was a multiplexer. Yeah. Right? That's the term that comes to mind. Modem eliminator? It was, no, it's no, not. No, it was a I asked, it was also on a token ring network at the time. Mm -hmm. I asked ChatGPT, and it's giving me garbage. Well, there <laughs> you go. <sighs> you need auto GPT, chaos GPT. Mm -hmm. You need all the GPTs. Yeah, I need to go download. She was talking about chaos GPT. Yeah, I want that. <laughs> Kennedy. Like, man, I need to get in on that. Like, <laughs> that sounds right up your alley, Bill. I want the chaos GPT. I was like, what are you doing? You're like, what are you doing? You're like, you can't release that to this audience. We're all going to die tomorrow. <laughs> or somebody will develop order GPT in order to compensate for it. Right. It would just be fighting. Uh, I want I, I saw the, fr the word teleportation. Yeah. And if you haven't noticed uh, from the previous segment, I'm all caught up on Loki season two. Um, I, I won't spoil it for you if you haven't watched Loki, but you should. So when I saw quantum teleportation, I was like, oh, is that like how you get into like different branches of time and like then prune the branches and stuff like that? Because that, be, that could be fun. But that's not, we're not quite there yet. We're almost there, I think. Maybe no, not. I mean, quantum teleportation is a real thing. It's just um, kind of a swindle. But the main thing it is is just entanglement. But but this this paper here about uh, the Google researchers have done something really awesome. You know, I did my PhD thesis on this stuff mm. in a much simpler case, but they, um, they had a uh, hundred years ago, they defined um, the collapse of the wave function when you have quantum uncertainty and when you measure it, the uncertainty vanishes. And they just said a measurement causes it to collapse. And then people say, what exactly is a measurement? And then you get Schrodinger's 
cat, right? Where you stick a cat in a box with something that has a 50% chance of killing it. And is the cat half alive and half dead until a human looks at it? Or is the cat looking at it sufficient measurement to cause it to collapse? And we've never had anything resembling an answer to this. But in the last two years, I've seen a lot of research like this where they're actually studying in detail this process where quantum uncertainty collapses using very small measurements so they can watch it happen. And that's what they did here. They actually entangled 70 qubits. Mm -hmm. And then if you measure the ones in the middle, the ones on the edge become more strongly entangled. It's like freezing the ice in the middle of a pond. So the connection between things on the edge is stronger because there's now a solid uh, object between them. Hmm. So this, this would have applications perhaps in quantum computing and in quantum communications, but the main thing is we might actually begin to actually understand this bizarre process where there's uncertainty and then the uncertainty goes away with this thing we call measurement. Is this like when I open my refrigerator and I close it and the light's off and then I open it and the light's on and I don't know if it is that yes. like the same kind of thing? Kind right. of and people talk about that. I mean, for example, if you believed the original idea here that it is human consciousness that causes the wave function to collapse that means when you turn your head the world dissolves into a vague fog and it's only when you turn back that it, it crystallizes into being a definite thing well that's a function mm -hmm. of the, the simulation that we're all in sam that's right it, it'd be just like that i mean when it's not being observed it sort of dissolves into an uncertain state until it's observed again right and you know that was the original sort of uh, mystical quasi-religious interpretation of this and we're getting it down to a more scientific one now it's crazy dude it's nuts i have no idea what he just said um but you know what what i do know is that this is the way that you can prove is that we're we're in the simulation right that that right. Is i think that's yes yes well actually you know the people took that simulation thing seriously a few years ago and i think the way to prove it would be to find the pixel size if you start blowing up pictures like galaxies or something, you should find a point where they, you hit the resolution, and they haven't found that. But anyway. Oh, I thought you were going to say you find the plug. If you unplug it, we all. <laughs> that too. Yeah. It's just like big green screens everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, this does mean uh, we're going to have better quantum computers and better quantum communication. Mm -hmm. where did Josh, and China Josh? just sent up some satellites which do quantum communication by sending entangled photons to locations on the planet that are like thousands of miles apart. So they each get a private key that way in a way that cannot be intercepted or copied. So they deliver a private key uh, using quantum entanglement over huge distances. And it works. Hmm. Incredible. So this is a form of... Uh, secure communication over an unsecure medium that does not rely on mathematics. Instead, it relies on physics. Hmm. Yeah, that's the mind-blowing thing about quantum computing is it's more about yeah. physics than it is mathematics. Yeah, it's very well, very well said, Sam. Yeah. And that's the idea. Then even if they start, you know, factoring prime numbers, it doesn't matter because hmm. our security does not come from the mathematical hardness. I feel like any story we pivot to just uh, pales in comparison. Um, Maybe we all, oh, you know, it was really fun hunting vulnerable kernel drivers. Holy crap. Wow. This was, and I'm still digesting uh, all of this, right? And this is all stuff that it's interesting. This overlaps with some of the things I talked about in my Shmukon presentation, which was about permanently breaking computers and well, air quotes permanently. And they did that in this research. Um, 
what's amazing is they referenced my uh, coworkers' research on screwdrivers, mm-hmm. and my other coworkers saw for a project called Chipsec, who the founders of Eclipsium uh, actually created while they worked at Intel. Um, so this is <clears throat> very much entangled, entangled, if you will, in my world. Uh, and they looked at a way to identify vulnerabilities in drivers that was different from before. It's a slightly different approach. I believe this is the one that talks about anger. Yes. Uh, symbolic execution or specific implementations based on anger fails at an unignorable rate by causing path explosions, false negatives, and other known errors. So they used a different method for identifying vulnerabilities whose technical details, to be quite honest with you, uh, I have not fully consumed or over my head at this point. Um, I did understand other bits and pieces of this when they talked about spy flash modification uh, and registers and using memory mapped IO. Uh, actually, that was the premise of taking advantage of some of these vulnerable drivers was to use memory mapped IO to gain access to the spy flash barring other permissions uh, in their example. If you scroll, keep scrolling, uh, it talks about how they used uh, one of the vulnerable drivers to issue uh, a spy erase command. So Chipsec is a project that reads the spy flash on your computer where all of the a lot of things are stored. I have a whole presentation about like what's stored there and how it's stored. Um, and my coworkers have explained that to me at, at length in the past year plus. Uh, and so, uh, but in Chipsec, it's reading those values. And uh, I remember folks telling me like, hey, if Chipsec, uh, it, it actually implements a driver on, on Windows and Linux uh, to be able to read that. And if you were to just like write some code that instead of reading were to write, it'd be really similar, right? Because you're using the same registers and mechanisms to read as you would to write. You're just changing what commands that you run, essentially, uh, what registers you flip, a different set of registers to issue the write. And like they did this and basically uh, overwrote uh, the first part of the spot, I believe, uh, and I didn't read this in like uh, great detail, but what uh, I got from it was they overwrote the first, first uh sector on the spy flash which is the uh region mapping data so it's basically like in a file system you've got the uh allocation table like the table that tells you where all the other stuff is stored your spy flash has the same thing and it's in usually in region zero of the spy flash it's like basically a map of hey here are all the other sectors on your spy flash Here's what uh, the permissions, you know, a write or read you have to those other partitions. So if you overwrite the region zero on the spy flash, the map, uh, yeah, your system's not not going to boot. And the only, I mean, I put air quotes permanently because like through now your mechanisms for rebuilding your spy flash through software are completely out the window. Uh, and the only way to truly rebuild that is to uh, clip the chip for example, is one way and uh, use uh, a spy flash programmer to write the spy flash. But that banks on the fact that you've not just got like the UEFI update, like you you need the entire spy flash dump <laughs> to be able to rewrite that over it. And that's not something that usually people store. Higher end actually servers will actually store multiple copies of uh, your, your true spy flash dump. Um, uh, but they, they reference in Eclipsium uh, blog. Oh, is that 
is that my blog? Oh, if it's my blog, it'll be so, I don't think it is. I think it's a previous blog that talks about protecting uh, your uh, firmware storage. Uh, so, so this is style of service, right? You can just make it unbootable. Could you also put in a boot kit, have control of the box? Absolutely. Absolutely. You, uh, so historically, I want to say you do, attackers have abused, uh, these vulnerable drivers to gain access to the spy flash, Sam, uh, to implant like, uh, an SMM backdoor, for example. Uh, right. moon bounce moon bounce was like one example i don't know if you use a vulnerable driver or not but some similar facility right to get down to that low level to be able to write uh and also your spy flash protections have to be kind of off as well uh and, so you is, know again it all depends so is there a defense can you blacklist all the vulnerable drivers or something that's a great question um so Microsoft tried to do that. That was in this article. Uh, and hold on, I quoted it. Um, so the uh, th they discovered 34 unique vulnerable drivers that there were 237 file hashes that make up those 34 unique vulnerable drivers. Uh, six allow kernel memory access. All give full control of devices to non-admin users. By exploiting vulnerable drivers, an attacker without system privilege may erase or alter firmware. Because these drivers, yeah. what I believe they give you access to, my coworkers will correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is the memory mapped I.O. So I'm accessing memory that maps to registers that then affect the uh, spy flash is roughly how that, that works. Xenokova actually has some really great training uh, if you on the open security training on, on how all that works. Um, so protections are silly was my comment, Sam. All discovered drivers give full control of devices to non-admin users. Uh, the team that did the research could load them all on HVCI-enabled Windows 11, except for five drivers. So HVCI is the facility in Windows 11 that basically uh, disables these drivers. Uh, in uh, They explain it at the top of the... So HVCI is... Um, since Windows 11 2022 update, the vulnerable drivers are blocked by default using hypervisor protected code integrity is the feature mm. to block these drivers. However, this bandless approach is only effective if the vulnerable driver is known in advance. So what they did was they found ones that aren't in this vulnerabilities and drivers that aren't in this list, Sam. So you'd have to update. Uh, right. Microsoft would have to update this list. But my guess is Microsoft hasn't done that because... It's a driver, <laughs> so if it prevents the loading of that driver, it means, yeah. oh, your device that relies on that driver may not work anymore. Well, yeah, but people that aren't using those particular devices would be a lot safer to just block them. To just, uh, that's a great, uh, I mean, how do you determine whether or not well, you, you need just, that? Yeah, you, you wouldn't make it a patch for everybody, but you'd make it, it'd be like your antivirus. You can install it, and it'll warn you if you have these devices. Residential right. threat intelligence. I mean, that's what you're talking about. Residential, like, like, you know, well, a, a threat not, feed not really. that comes in and your in your system goes. You don't have that. We're gonna. That's right. That driver's being blocked. That's right. But it that has to be, be real time. If you plug one of those devices in, well, and it's not so much device drivers either. These drivers do like different. Uh, they don't say what all these devices actually do. Uh, there's also. Law bins, uh, there's uh, law drivers. 
uh, is uh, another great resource as well. So if you go to lawdrivers.io, that site tells you about, uh, is a curated list of Windows drivers used by adversaries to bypass security controls and carry out attacks. So like basically, well, you, know, you, you don't want any of these drivers on your system. Well, you know, how often do you need to put on a new driver? It ought to just be that no driver can be installed without popping a box and asking you, are you really trying to add new hardware right now? Right. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. I mean, there would be ways to obviously trick that system. Well, yeah, but, but you know, it just it shouldn't be uh, by default possible to just easily install new drivers. But I again, like I don't know, Sam, if these are necessarily device drivers or drivers that allow for some other functionality in the in the system. Right. That's the question. Yeah. Yeah. They might be like loadable kernel modules that you need for certain activities. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Because like when. Most of the time, even like uh, as nerds, we say drivers, we're most of the time thinking of a device driver, but it goes so much deeper than that. Like there's other drivers are really just kernel. I mean, the facility is usually kernel module yeah. and there's lots of kernel modules that do different things. There's also, it's an overloaded term because there are drivers in UEFI, which are basically earlier stage, not just device drivers, but other pieces of code that are loaded by UEFI to enable hardware and other functionality uh, on, on the system. Yeah. So that was, so there isn't much of a defense. No. There's, there's nothing you can, there's no product you can put on there to protect you. No antivirus or anti rootkit or anything. No, I mean, short of just uh, saying, don't load these drivers on the system, which could impact functionality. Yeah. 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 It's, it's one of the things that I want to spend a little more time in uh, on the defensive side, uh, yeah. Sam, because uh, mm -hmm. yeah, this is this is going to be continued to be abused. Josh yeah. is back. Josh is back. Josh, my yes. story number four: running number the reflections on trusting trust compiler. Before we start, <laughs> did you see? Did you see this, Josh? Did I? Did I sent this to you? I don't know if you read it. I did not see it. Oh, oh my, my God. God. This All is right. the so oldest freaking no. Ken Thompson. Yes. Yes. I knew you were going to be excited about this. So obviously uh, in October 1983, 40 years ago this week, 40 years oh ago God. this week, uh, which was la actually last week, Wednesday, October 23rd is when this was published. Um, so roughly 40 years ago, obviously Ken Thompson wrote the Reflections on Trusting Trust, presented it at uh, the ACM conference. Um, it was published. It's a three-page short paper uh, that talks about the compiler inside the compiler that Josh and I like to joke about all the time, mm -hmm. uh, right? And inserted a backdoor into the login program. And so mm -hmm. the way the story goes, the person that wrote this article was watching a talk by Ken Thompson recently, March 2023, Ken Thompson gave the closing keynote at Southern California Linux Expo in a delightful talk about his 75-year effort accumulating what must be the world's largest privately held digital music collection. That's beside the point. Uh, someone jokingly asked about the Turing Award lecture because he won a Turing Award for his reflections on trusting trust. Um, he said, and the person who asked the question said, can you tell us right now whether you have a backdoor copy of GCC and Linux still today? And Ken's response Holy was, shit. 
shit. Was no. Holy shit. Yes. He yeah. did, though. He fucking did. Yes. So, but like what he said in there is, um, but the one, so I'm going to quote Ken Thompson at the end of his explanation says, but the one question I've been waiting for since I wrote the paper 40 years ago is, you got the code? He's like, I've never been asked. And yes, I still have the code. The author of this article wrote Ken Thompson and said, hey, can I have a copy of the code? Ken Thompson was like, sure, you can have a copy of the code and friggin' sent him the code. And so for the first time, all of us nerds get to read through the code. And the author did what is, can only be described as the most frigging amazing job of not just describing what the code does, running the code, sharing an example of how it worked, putting it on a virtual instance of like version of V5 Unix system in virtualization. Also rewrote the code in Go uh, and gave that example uh, as well. And uh, just like on, and, but then also talks about how modern compilers actually have defenses against this, which I think is Ken talked about in his paper, right? Because you've got like multiple compilers and they both compile the code and then they compare uh, the code. Got, but my technical details are kind of lost. It's very confusing to understand the bootstrapping trust. Uh, so an important advancement since 1983, we know is a defense against this backdoor, which is to build the compiler source in two different ways. Uh, and then goes into the description of the I can't do justice to the defensive mechanisms. Dude, this is good. This is good. This, this is, is good code. This is scary to, funny. Right? This I need guy, to like, read this like 17 more times, and then I'll come back on the show once I've done that, and I'll have an even better explanation of it. <laughs> he could win obfuscated C and still like he could like this would win obfuscated C up until a few years ago. This is scary good. And it's it's actually it's fairly simple. But he puts in just enough misdirection in here that, that, that this is fun. It's he crazy, owned, right? He owned GCC until somebody broke it, as he put it. Like, owned GCC. Like, yeah, crazy. Like he, he breaks it down because Ken's paper, is, there's a, a multiple like sections and things you have to uh, grok before you... Uh, fully understand what's happening, right? Like the first, as he says, this author says in um, uh, running the Reflections on Trust on Trust compiler article, he says you have to write a self-reproducing program, which is called a Quine, which is basically a program that prints its own source code out, right? That's step one. Step two, uh, compilers learn. So notice when a compiler compiles itself, because when the compiler compiles itself, you have to know when that happens so that you can inject your back door. Then you have to uh, learn how to uh, recognize uh, the back door, uh, recognize and insert the back door, recognize the compiler itself and insert the code before the changes, uh, and then know like what facilities inside the compiler will allow for you to uh, insert this. It's just amazing, amazing stuff. Yeah, the test code is working on V5. It only works on V6. Unix. This was built in 1975. Yes. And this son of a bitch was looking forward to how we program today in a lot of ways. He had magic parameters in there. 
He had self-reproducing code. Do you know how they found it? Uh, apparently, they found it at a, at a group, the PWB group. Oh, yeah. There's a whole and story in there, dude. Oh, my God. Yeah, like they this found code it yeah, it had propagated. And getting bigger every time. The only reason they found it was it kept getting bigger every time. It wasn't cleaning itself up as it went along. So they broke that sucker and, and, and brought back a clean compiler. They literally just replaced their compiler and brought back a clean compiler. But the back door was in the pre-process. This is cool. Oh, this is so cool. I thought you'd appreciate that, Josh. Oh my God, this is so neat. I'm sorry. This is like... <laughs> this is like a big deal, man. Like 40 years. We've been talking uh -huh. about this paper, right? And yeah. now we get to see the actual source code in action. In computer what history, this might as well be about what it's doing. Mm. Right? Right. And it's actually pretty cool. And uh, I mean, yeah, think about this. This is Unix V5. This is way long ago. And uh, before V5, actually V4. So get out, your, get out that uh, roadmap versions of Linux that stretches mm -hmm. a mile long. And look way over to the Unix end before BSD. Yeah, before this is system they're, yeah, three. They're referencing system four, system five. Yeah, he's he's got a, he's got a simulator. He's got an emulator running V six in there that'll work. Right, will work on. So in the article, yep. you can just click there and see it. You don't have to build your own. Relax. Yeah, but like this is just so adorable. Like mm -hmm. it was built beautifully. It was well thought out. It was. It uses programming fundamentals that we still use today, quite quite literally. And wow. then he built it. But then he built it in Go, which is really like impressive. I thought it's it's like take that. I'm doing this in Go. Cody, cool. Yeah. Again, it's this is an article you're gonna read multiple times for sure. Yeah, definitely. And a good piece of history. Mm-hmm. So. Sorry, that's just neat. I'm I'm reading this again already. <laughs> it's it's very distracting, I know. Yeah. Yes. So I have two words for you, Paul, and yeah. and and a challenge. The challenge is don't go backwards. The two words that you were trying to remember earlier is hunt group. A hunt group, yes. Thank you, Lee. Hunt group. Yes. And was now that thinking what, about the last that story again? I know it. Was that implemented in in software? Or was there like a hardware that did the hunt? It was grouping? an algorithm. Yeah. So it was about the, it was an algorithm for how the uh, lines were hunted. You could do it sequentially based on phone number. You could do it uh, by a predetermined rotation, or a, there was another. There was three or four variants, but basically, yeah, it was how it decided to route calls. Good and, lord! Uh, and whether thankfully, it was the we don't have the PBX in a small business or your bank of modems. It was all the yeah. Same it was in the underneath. It. Thank you. It was in the PBX. That's the missing piece. It was in the PBX, mm -hmm. and it was a hunt group. Yes. Wow. Or, or line. I'm sure somebody's setting line group out from the side because that was another name for it. Sure, but I. But we all call it a hunt group on the PBX. Now that you mention it, we did. I forgot that we had a PBX. <laughs> I forgot people used to have a, a PBX as part of their infrastructure. I mean, oh. I'm sure some people still do, but uh, I was going to say it's it's a surveillance it's, matrix switch. We used yeah. to have our own five ESS. It's a little bigger than a PBX, but it's basically a PBX. Yeah, 
We used to have a really small PBX. Now that you now that you say that, at the mm-hmm. first company I worked for, and it we did configure the hunt group. Yes, wow, that takes me back. I haven't thought about that in a long time. I remember selling a four-line PBX system back in the early '80s for Radio Shack. I had no idea what the hell I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there were like small it was cool, PBXs boy, back in the day. It there was. was. <laughs> that was freaking crazy. But I still had to sell it. I feel like we should have had Kathleen stay on for just this story because yes. she used to work at AT and T Labs. Yeah, oh, I wonder, you know, yeah. she overlapped with uh, a Mudge Peter Zaktow uh, at DARPA uh, in like previous roles. Yeah, because um, I, I remember talking with her about that, uh, not on the air. So, oh. yeah, we should actually. Do we want to? Do we want to move to to Sam's article two and three? The 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 AI order. Yeah, I asked Kathleen yeah. about that, and I thought her answers were amazing. <laughs> it was very yeah, kind she, of tactful, tongue in cheek, tactful and tongue in cheek, right? Yeah, uh, well, uh, yeah, and and you know, I I'll, some people think this is great. Like uh, Jake Williams said this. Oh, not something else. Sorry, I'm mixing up. This is the Biden executive order. I don't think any. The best thing I read about it is people say similar orders have just been ignored in the past. And boy, I hope we can just <laughs> ignore this one. Because it's well, 200 pages long, and it says you have to submit all kinds of documents proving you're testing your AI for security flaws when you don't even know what you're talking about. And the pe- government people at the other end don't know what they're talking about either. So, you know, it just seems like it's going to waste your time filling out a bunch of forms with nonsense. Oh, so it's going to be run by the FDA? Is that... It's going to be what? <laughs> it's going to be run by the FDA? Is that... Is that uh, it's gonna, oh. They're going to make, I think, I think, new agencies... To oversee AI security, and you will have to report to them how you tested your AI to make sure it's not racially discriminatory and stuff. Yeah. So it's going to be just the kind of uh, burdensome, pointless administration that uh, that the Republicans always complain about. But I it think sounds like to me. Yeah. But I think it's so, when Kathleen was describing it, right? She said there was a, and these aren't her words, but she alluded to the noticeable absence of teeth. And that's where I I, I tend to get frustrated with a lot of executive orders and initiatives and even standards put out by NIST. And I think NIST does an amazing job. Don't get me wrong. And uh, I have friends at NIST doing great work. But I think what we really yearn for in cybersecurity is for something to have some teeth, for someone to put a stake in the ground and go, you can't ship a product or if you do you got to fix it you can't ship something that has some heinous security flaws in it and if you do you no, got to friggin fix them but in this here's case the I, don't, I don't want any teeth at all because they don't even know what they're talking about yet i mean it's not time to regulate ai yet we don't even have ai yet well and that's the scary well and that's okay the, scary so the large language models are not strong ai or general ai you're right yeah but what they are is something that can be used to abuse a lot of people and a lot of social engineering and a lot of weird stuff and the problem is, is that every time you regulate, the AI creators move to another country. <clears throat> China and the EU have much better AI regulation than we have currently, although this new executive order, by the way, it's only like three days old, just FYI, uh, yeah. is going to bring about. And so everybody moved to the US because we have venture capital and we have no regulation. What happens if we put out actual regulation where you have to do all sorts of stuff to, to, to do it? Nobody's going to pay attention. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to predict it now. And I, 
and I offered to help Kathleen. I, I want to help them with this stuff to do it right. Yeah. But part of it is to realize that there's going to be a lot of ignorance and, and deliberate ignorance of the regulations. Look, right now, if you're a, if you're a venture capital funded company and you're like, we're going to build product X and somebody goes, Hey, didn't somebody patent that? Don't look, don't look, don't look. Well, if you know there's see, a I patent, you're, you can be held as a, a patent infringer. If you don't know there was a patent, you're ignorant. It's a lesser penalty. But, like but we're I perversely incentivizing the stuff. Yeah, I don't think we need any new regulations because we have generic laws like product liability laws. If you make some product and it hurts somebody, they can sue and say your product has a defect. You don't need a new the government agency and regulatory law, I think. No, that's not necessarily true because tons of people make hammers and you could use yeah. a hammer to build a house or you could use a hammer to smash someone in the head. And you, and you can sue McDonald's because when you pour the co coffee on yourself, it burns you. No, that's, that, there's a whole story. That, there's, there's a whole a, story there that actually is not a bullshit story. Like yeah, it's, that's it's a, not, that it's story, not a bullshit lawsuit. That's a rabbit well, hole. That's why, that's, you can sue and you can, you can argue your case in court and you might win. And you might be able to sue the hammer manufacturer if you have a good enough argument that, that the product is defective. And the same thing's true of AI. Mm -hmm. So I have reason to be optimistic about this. My reasoning is that, so I, I made, when uh, ChatGPT first came out, I made two predictions, uh, both of which I told myself, like, depending on which happens within a year, will shape my opinion as to how aggressive and how serious the U.S. government thinks that this innovation is and how serious they are about it. Even though this may lack teeth, even though this lacks refinement, to me, the fact that this is being done so fast is significantly different from how fast the U.S. government has moved on new technologies in the past, cybersecurity, etc. This I haven't seen them do anything this quickly before when it came to a brand yeah, new technology. I don't think they really did anything. Other they're starting. Yeah, but it's the same. You see, with my same gripes with supply chain uh, and CMMC, Josh, right? Mm. <laughs> Excuse me. All these things just take so much time they do and it just kind of <clears throat> kicks the can down the road delays things like yeah we should do this we should do that there's a lot of should and not a lot of putting the stake in the ground going you have to pass you have to adhere to this standard or you can't <sighs> do business with the federal government you <clears throat> have to attest to your supply chain or you can't take this product to market and sell a to these hundred freaking percent a hundred percent okay let's be clear on this a hundred percent if you can't tell me that your supply chain from smallest supplier of one piece of code or hell a supplier of a lamp that you use in your in your parking lots or whatever <clears throat> has appropriate code appropriate hardware appropriate steel that they're using for the lamps whatever okay whatever it is if you can't show me attestations that they're doing things properly we can't let you do the work. Mm -hmm. Sorry. In certain, and so in certain circumstances, like the, the flip side of that, Josh, is my work on Android TV devices. Like who's regulating that? Who's going, when I go to Amazon and I buy a cheap Android TV device, not an actual TV, although there are some of those that we can talk about, but an Android TV device, right? It's a 25 to $35 device. And I want to buy it from Amazon Where's the assurance that it doesn't have malware on it already? Because I bought some and I found malware on it 
already. Now, I didn't do the original research. There's, I referenced it in my article on Eclipsium. There's lots of other people that identified this before me. I was basically just um, recreating their research going, yeah, I found similar things. And my article was more about the how than the what. But let's talk about the what. Where's the assurance? Assurance that when you're building a fighter jet is very different from assurance Josh wants to go buy a $25 Android TV device. Where's the assurance that right. China's not spying on Josh and there's not malware on there? They're the same oh, thing. There's, there's assurance that it is. Yeah, it's, you know, they're trying for right. the... Sam is talking right now in, in Discord about the cyber UL, and he's absolutely correct. And that cyber UL would be lovely if we could get it off the ground and if we could make it so that it would work properly. But make but, it work across countries, though. That's the problem. That's the tough is part. The U.S. can create that standard in in try and enforce how do you enforce that how do you as the u.s Look, federal government go anything gets shipped here into the u.s that comes from wherever how do we make sure that you've validated your supply chain and that there's nothing wrong with that device when it's shipped you can't there's, let, logistically you can't do that the u.s can't even enforce customs yeah. to say that we can't get cuban cigars because i have a friend that orders cuban cigars and they get past u.s customs He's oh, wait, a, it gets better. He's a you really could, good you friend. You could go to, for a while there, you could go to wish.com or any of the Chinese order sites and order suppressors that were fuel filters or, yep. or you know, yeah, fuel yeah. solvent traps. And, uh, you can know, can you send my friend the link yeah, to that? Sure. Mm. No, no, I won't. <laughs> um, and you could order uh, what are known as Glock switches, which are switches to make Glocks do other things that they're not legally allowed to do. Right. I mean, the laws are so draconian i'm not even sure i'm allowed to explain what they do that's how bad it is oh like a bump okay. a bump stock is another kind of thing right uh this is worse it is literally literally uh, full auto on your glock yeah it's it mm -hmm. you, you flip the switch it literally goes full auto on your clock now mind you it's that's not hard to do but it, it it's just a switch it goes on the back of the clock one way it's semi-auto the other way it's full auto that's terrifying and you could buy them and they were i think 20 bucks mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. And it was no problem to have it shipped. Now, the ATF shows up at your door absolutely, uh, very shortly thereafter and goes, you are, I, um, yeah, you are in gross violation here. of federal law at that point. Yes. Matter of fact, there was a guy, a, a, a podcaster, who bought a whole crap ton of diesel fuel filters from everywhere, from China, from local stores, from very reputable online dealers in the US, very high quality stuff. And he was doing, he was ripping them apart, you know, cutting them up to show the differences in the diesel fuel filters. The ATF shows up at his door and he had the camera running. So it's, it, he's got it running. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we know you're building suppressors. Come on out here. He goes, no, um, come here, come into the garage. He has a big garage that he does his videos in. And they're like, what's this? He goes, I ripped them apart so I can show people the difference in quality between the ones you order from China and the ones you get at your local Napa and the ones you get from whatever big trucking website type thing. And they're like, oh, oh, you're serious. Yeah. Hmm. And, and, you know, here, here's my video channel. Take a look. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're not joking. Oh, okay. Have a nice day, sir. And they leave. They were ready to arrest him right there. They told him, if you yeah. just turn them over to us, we'll walk away. It's no big deal. He's like, uh, and then he did the whole spiel about what he does and they left. Hmm. But like, this is, this is normal for, for commerce from China to be able to be sending illegal things into the country. Uh, and this isn't drugs. This is, you know, like illegal by our laws but not by theirs right and then the federal agencies play catch-up mm -hmm. okay what are they going to do about code or malware that's right like, malware like they, at think this time. Yeah. TV, they don't think malware 
But we should have something that says if somebody finds malware, then they should be rounded up and then they should be blocked. So Does that I think what you want? Do you want to just listening to conversation, you know, one of the things that really stands out to me, and I think it was Sam that said, you know, like we, we have those laws already for individuals, you know, so like, at, you know, like individuals have, can be held responsible, right? So th they can be, re be held responsible for their actions, whether we're talking about uh, a Glock that's been converted to full auto or, you know, somebody writing malware um, using ChatGPT, right? It, 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 and the hammer, right? The hammer that can build the house. And so we already have those laws, right? And I think, so Paul, one of the things that just kind of kicked off this conversation, when you start talking about government teeth, mm. right? So when you start talking about that regulation, what that, what that also does is really slow down progress, right? I agree. It stifles, it stifles innovation, Bill, right. it, it, if it's not done properly. Yes. Agreed. And I, and I think over the, I think over the last, you know, if, if you just kind of look back and maybe like the last six years, seven years, you know, like uh, across party bounds and everything, I, I think, I think government has been doing a, a really good job, of at least understanding what the, what the, the new impactful technologies are going to be. And, and trying to, you know, trying to at least put out some guidance, whether you're talking about, you know, executive orders or NIST or whatever. Yeah, it's lacking teeth, right? Yeah, it, it, it's lacking the enforcement teeth, but at least there's some guidance, um, you know, so like cybersecurity or AI or whatever, at least there's some guidance that will like help, like in the event that, that an individual uses that that what, whatever that tool is improperly help it, it that at that point when you're starting to prosecute an individual that that starts to 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 give that that credence to the uh, you know to the individual responsibility and then being held accountable for it it's, it's and, and i think bill along those lines and i don't i don't want to get we don't talk politics on the show right but i think there's a difference between uh, guidelines like hey you should do things in this way or make goods in this way to the next level, which is you have to abide by some standard if you're allowed to sell goods in this country, right? And that mm -hmm. now that starts getting into you could stifle innovation and entry in, and create barriers to market in that example. But you're not saying you you can't you're not taking out the ban hammer. That's the that's the final step. Like the ban hammer is no more straws plastic right. bags there was a, a rumor someone told me the other day like california's banning skittles and i'm like i gotta i gotta fact check that and like the first article i get is like from the food network <laughs> and it's like california's not banning skittles like let me break it down and i thought and i didn't like fact check them like the food network site because it, it could be completely wrong but what i what i read it satisfied my curiosity. It satisfied my curiosity enough that I was like, "Oh, there are certain substances that were uh, three different substances that were uh, being regulated now by California." By the way, none of the three are included in Skittles. So if you want like Skittles and you live in California, you're safe. It was at one time in the bill something in Skittles that was proposed to be banned, but they took it out. Aluminum oxide. Something like that. I don't remember what red dye number three was. The other, so they broke down the three different. Okay. So this is where we get in the supply chain of like regulating what components, what ingredients, literally in this case, what ingredients can be in the product 
that you're bringing to market. Now, the first two turns out already regulated by the FDA. The third one was red dye number three. And that's the one where they were like, yeah, that could be kind of dicey, right? I also think you'd have to eat a, like a metric ass load, and that's a scientific term, a metric ass load of red dye number three in order for you to get cancer from it or whatever. That's just oh, my- Skittles aren't banned. <laughs> no, they're, they're not. But there was somehow, I think they were uh, proposed. Yeah, yeah. There, was, there yeah. was a fifth ingredient that was that is in Skittles, titanium dioxide. Titanium. It's what okay. makes white paint white. And they, they, they took that off the ban, so Skittles now passed. Right. Um, but the other one's brominated vegetable oil, potassium bromate, propyl yes. paraben, and red dye number three. Red dye number All three. of which sound god-awful nasty. Like, yeah, like, brominated. Hey, let me just go great. under the kitchen sink and just, you know, ah. Yeah, like, is it number two on. or number three? Red dye number three. Red okay. dye number three. But again, a lot. No, red like a lot, but a lot of these things, and I don't know how it relates to cybersecurity, but right, a lot of these things are like, oh, in tests against small animals or rodents in high dosages, you know, 60% of the rats, you know, were, were died of cancer. It's like, well, like how much of this stuff are you, <laughs> you'd have to, yeah. in the minute amounts found in, in food, you'd have to consume like i don't think you could in some cases i've read like listen to podcasts i'm like you physically could not consume enough of the end product to consume enough of the ingredient to be be harmful to you there is the question of buildup um brominated vegetable oil is one that i that is yeah, you're into all this kind of i like chem chemistry yeah, chemistry stuff yeah yeah, yeah, I, yeah i got into an argument in high school with my chemistry teacher in we were talking about bromine and i'm like oh yeah just like in soda and he's like He's like, what? That's not possible. There's no way you could brominate something and put it in there. And I held up a can of Mountain Dew and pointed to it. And he knew that based on the chemistry applied, probably wasn't a great idea. And granted, it's not bromine in there. It's it's a state change. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, The vegetable oil is exposed to it um, and acts as a catalyst, if I'm understanding correctly. Um, but this, is, this was not too long after. Anybody remember Surge and the scare surrounding Surge soda? And the oh, dye yeah. that was in it. It what was, was Sur Jolt. Surge was a soda. No, no, Jolt. Was it Jolt for Loco? Oh, I forget. It was, no, it was yeah. Surge, and there were. It was like Yellow Lake Forty or something like that. That was supposed to cause all sorts of, all sorts of problems. Um, this just really reminds me of that. In that we're we're going through a similar thing. We're discovering. Yeah, but I want to bring it back to cybersecurity. Yeah. <clears throat> we're talking about the ingredients in said product. Is it if it's an integer overflow? Is it really bad? Could be. In certain circumstances, energy overflow could be catastrophic. In other cases, eh, it's just a bug that you need to fix. So if the regulations say no energy overflows, that could be, it could be a bad day. Now, now we're disputing, right? Now we're back to the poor Daniel and the, the curl project, right? Yeah. Where they misclassified energy overflows in, in, his, in his project as... NVD is like 9.8. And Daniel's like, no, that was really like a low severity thing that we fixed a year or more ago. And it's not like all integer overflows aren't instantly a CVSS score of nine and above. You know what I'm saying? It's the same thing with the, we're talking about ingredients in right. food and candy. <clears throat> is it bad? This is where regulation can go wrong, right? It can like over 
compensate for the and implement the ban hammer when it doesn't it doesn't need to. So I have an example that's iterative. So um, if anybody's seen like the first versions of PCI DSS, oh, they were no. so weak. There Jeff was... doesn't. Jeff's not here to. You said PCI, <laughs> yes. and even though Jeff's not here, like telepathically now he's he doing has a joined, show. He has joined the show. Yeah, like he's like Jeff Man, Jeff Man, yep. Bloody he's Mary. Like, <laughs> he's like, there's a disturbance in the. Fo- I sense a disturbance Jeff's not in here, the force. Man. <laughs> if he walks through the door, I'll eat my hat. Um, he is going to use force projection <laughs> and project himself using the force yeah. onto the show right now. So with the the original version of pci it was it was significantly weaker compared there was a lot stricter a lot less definition compared to what we have now which uh what are we up to 3.2 3.4 4.0 will be official josh do you know what bill do you know what lee sam 4.0 uh (laughs) it's uh, uh like six months i forget okay it's soon it's very soon we've come a long way um the way that I've read and interpreted the effect of what the language had on people in the market, people responsible for that, essentially it was teaching people basic cybersecurity concepts to start with who had never been exposed to it um, by basically saying you have to be compliant here. It wasn't necessarily, uh, especially in the beginning, requiring a lot of actual security to be in place but it was starting to get to the point where they were like hey you have to start thinking about this are you going to drink any of this booze or are you going to leave it all up to me and i thought okay. that was yours okay. why are you pouring into a glass just <laughs> i should just be drinking right from the it's, bottle it's then. a waste of time um although i was eyeballing the bar the bottle of chartreuse over there that's a that's a nice those are hard to get right it's now. all yours anyway um, what were we saying so so anyway it, what, what i've essentially seen is that pci dss is effectively teaching people basic cybersecurity principles over a very long period of time. Um, if we were able to do that a whole lot better with uh, a, a less, um, yeah, a, a lot more efficiently, we could do that in similar iterations where it, it grows sharper teeth over time yeah, and I, teaches people. I agree. I think PCI is a good example of regulation that has been effective. I think we poop largely, I poo pooed it for a long time. Me too. And, but you know what the turning point for me was when I read books about credit card fraud mm-hmm. and then took what I learned from talking to smart folks on the show like Jeff on, on PCI and I put the two together and I was like, say what you will about PCI, but it really did a great job as a data security standard to curb credit card fraud. Yeah. Now, nothing's perfect. We still have credit card fraud. We still have really poor security of, of merchants and, and cardholder data, but we're in a much better place than we were 10, 15, 20 years ago when the Carter's market was the the hotness of how cyber criminals made money. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. So too. like, why can't we apply this model to other things? Uh, like we're talking about supply chain, like we're right. talking about AI. I'd like to see them go through like the sensible regulation and guidance that has some teeth that gets us to our goal where we can have a a framework to securely implement AI and we can have a framework to securely validate uh, or validate the supply chain. I don't know. Now I'm living in a utopian world. Welcome to Paul's utopian world. I mean, that's the goal, right? We do that with user security in our environments. We start if if you've got an organization where your users have never under, undergone any cybersecurity training, 
you have to start small. Otherwise, people are just going to rage quit and go like, hey, I'm not, I'm not doing your fishing testing. I don't care about this. So if you start in a place where it's achievable and they can understand the benefit that it has to them, even if it's a created one, like in some cases with PCI. Right. People like us, you know, like outside of people like us, we have to make people care about supply chain security, right. care about the security of AI and generative AI. And I'd rather do uh, that before, before something the boom. really bad. Before happens. the what Kathleen, I right. believe, like didn't refer yeah, to it is, like the specifically. Wheel gets the grace. Yeah, the squeaky the boom. Yeah. I, I hate to use the term it, that, we, like left of boom, right? Because that's like a left of bang. Left feel, of bang. Ah, ah, I feel like it's like a marketing term, right? It is totally a marketing term, but you know what but I'm saying. But that's what security is about: is about marketing the the vulns and flaws and and bangs and and hacks and breaches. So that we can get budget for thing to fix things that needed to have been fixed five years ago. That's why and you do a penetration test and you get a shopping list of things to go fix. Yeah. Well, oh, I, 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 wanna, I just go ahead, Bill. Yeah. What I was going to say is, man, we just live in a phantasmagoria. Everything sucks. Code sucks. Everything's going to kill you if you eat it. Kill. Just legalize everything. We'll be able to come. Let's just do it. I, you know, along no, those lines, no, no, no. along those lines, though, I want to go to something a little more happier because I think Bill just summarized our misery very well. Um, That's I got to I got to throw one thing in there, Paul. I apologize. You but always Bill, do. Don't you realize we have job security? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just it is true. It is true. We also have. So my question is, and if you're listening at home in the car uh, with kids and stuff, fast forward through this part because I want to make an analogy. Last week, we talked about shenanigans. Is shenanigans just a nice way of saying fuckery? <laughs> Is that? Probably true, yes. Okay. <clears throat> I just had that real... I was today years old when I had that realization that those two words basically mean the same thing. My story number 20. Um, Scott Helm. I feel like I've met Scott before. Like, we've crossed paths with Scott uh, before. I recognize the name uh, and he runs a, a blog where he talked, this post is talking about fun things. And his post was holiday fun with my Unified G4 doorbell pro. And this speaks to our shenanigans because he's like, Halloween's here. And I want to program my lights outside so they're a certain color. And I want it when someone rings my doorbell that the chime plays a spooky sound and not the regular chime. And I'm like, this is like shenanigans. This is this is true hacking. And he uh, Scott does an amazing job of talking about how you SSH to your unified doorbell, replace some files, change some permissions. But my thing is like, what if other people could change the ringer on your doorbell or ring your doorbell for you? There are certain doorbells that are really susceptible to this i haven't looked at there are apparently some things you can do with a flipper zero to interact with people's doorbells and ring them but the article that i read that i didn't post in here which was basically i'll use the nice term shenanigans that you can pull off with your flipper zero and one of them was interacting with people's doorbells bill if you you're shaking your head like you've done this before knowing you as long as i have you have experimented with shenanigans yeah. Yeah, and, we've, and probably I'm probably not the only one here. I imagine that we've all done that. But so like there were and, you know, just kind of and I don't know what you're talking about with the 
So I, I did read the Unify article, but talking about other doorbells, uh, I'm sure you guys have all seen like um, uh, what what is it like driveway announcements and you know like real early on there were wireless doorbells or like extending doorbells like into the basement those kind of things those always work those always worked on like if i remember right like in the 400 megahertz range or, oh. or something like that yeah, right like you're talking about i years ago i walked into home depot or whatever and i bought a wireless doorbell and basically it was uh transmitting and receiving at some frequency with no authentication yeah. no security whatsoever it was just like if you're on this frequency and you transmit this data you can make the doorbell go off yeah off, right like if, if there's a signal it's it's ringing yeah. the door right and 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 certainly like th those kind of things like still exist in in all kinds of areas right mm -hmm. it, just all kinds of areas but but so like but you know but then you start thinking about um you know just what what's the utility of of doing that? So the the Unify article was was more interesting to me. Uh, you know, you know, could you replace that? Probably not, right? So now you're actually talking about getting into someone's network, and then you got to SSH into their doorbell right, to, to right. build something a uh, little bit more difficult than just sending thirty three megahertz, right? It, it's a, well, it's I a think I, in the Flipper article, build to your point, um, it said that. The doorbell stuff you can do with the flipper, you can't necessarily do that with like a, a ring or what's the other popular doorbell? I use Nest. Ring. What Nest. is it? Like Nest. Nest. Yeah, Nest. Yeah, they said because Nest and Ring, like you were saying, Bill, are basically Wi-Fi. Like even I think the chime that I configured for my Ring doorbell, it communicate. It does. It communicates over Wi-Fi unless it's initial setup. Initial setup's probably like BLE or something where it pairs to my phone, then I give it the Wi-Fi <coughs> credentials over Bluetooth. Then it goes, oh, I can connect to the Wi-Fi now and I can find the ring doorbell and now we're paired and we're, life is good. Yeah, so what, what's interesting about this, and you know, I kind of thought about this a little bit. I, I, I'm sure you know this, but I'm a big Halloween guy and most of my decorations are, are animatronics and they're all yeah. controlled home assistant and you know th those kind of things. But... Um, Years and years ago, I built a RGB lanyard, and um, and I purposely made it vulnerable, and and, and we we wore them to to DefCon. Um, so it was uh, it it you could it had an open wireless, you know, it was open, and you could also it was unauthenticated Bluetooth. Um, and, and I was hoping to see that somebody would change, you know, the color of my you know of the lanyard that that we were wearing, which never occurred, you know. So nobody mm -hmm. ever. My lanyard. I was kind of disappointed about that, but you start thinking about things like um, when you start looking at the just the consumer electronics around, just the RGB lights, the ones that are underneath your kids' beds or up in the rooms or whatever like that. Um, it would probably pre be pretty easy to to take control of those, right? Like, um, oh, that's mostly you, um, most of the ones my kids mess with. Bill are infrared. Yeah, I don't know if you got um, like, especially when they get to be teenagers, they're like, I gotta have LED lights in my room, and my son's gone through like five or six sets over the years because like they break and they move them around and yeah, <clears throat> whatever. But there's a an infrared uh, receiver. It's usually on like a little cable <clears throat> that comes off the power brick that it comes with a remote. 
many of those are in infrared databases that you can put on your yeah. flipper. So you could definitely do some shenanigans with that. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I knew um, the headphones uh, in Honda vehicles, like so the back, you know, for the kids in the in the in the back of the minivan, those actually were infrared too. The really? audio transmitted over IR. Can, no can way. Nice. I didn't even know that was possible. Yeah, those are uh, a lot of as seen on TV type products for, yeah. for people sitting there like they can't hear their TV, they don't want to make it so loud that their spouse can't uh, is being disturbed by it, so they'll get headphones that work off of IR. And but so the the TV would need to be usually the, TVs have an infrared receiver. There's a little secondary box. That, oh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> that does a, a infrared transmission into yeah. the receiver that's in the the headphone. Yeah, I don't know. See, if what I do is shape, I but... use um, I use it like an Nvidia Shield device mm -hmm. that has Bluetooth on it, and then I'll pair my head blue. You can pair any Bluetooth headphones essentially to that. This is making me think of a something I designed when I was in elementary school, which was a essentially an infrared flashbang. Mm -hmm. So. It was, and I only designed it on paper, and I never made that finished model for AI, I'm sorry, for, for infrared, but uh, the theory was if I could program it with a set of certain infrared signals, then I could cause a whole bunch of things to respond and or turn on and off. Uh, it'd have to be strong enough, uh, but you could basically like put it on a table and everything would go haywire in the room. Um, I opted instead for a Casio watch, which had a built-in TV remote, in order to uh, make my teachers' teachers' lives more interesting. Mm. Now you have all that in, on the flipper. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Although although it's not multi-directional. So uh, with add-on boards, it oh, is true. right. Yep, I'll send you a link. If you try hard enough, anything is multi-directional. Yeah, I mean, you could probably build your. I mean, you could build your own for uh, sure. For sure, right? Yeah. Like it's just a board where you solder a bunch of uh, diodes on it, uh, and the ones I ordered weren't very expensive, but work phenomenally well. Yeah. Uh, on the flipper but the flipper now i'm giving people ideas on how to cause carnage dave with their flippers well, like also, don't do this unless you have permission however the flipper has a really cool <clears throat> infrared interface yeah one of the things inside of the the flipper kind of ecosystem is the concept of a playlist so like <clears throat> your infrared files are the definition files that set tell your flipper to transmit this data over infrared, right? Yeah. And so you obviously tune that to control TVs and whatever. But as you make a playlist on your flipper that says transmit, you know, activate this IR file and transmit, then activate this file and transmit, then activate this. So it's basically like a like when you would do a playlist for like yeah. audio, you would do the same thing for attack. So to implement your attack on the flipper, <clears throat> you would have an add-on through GPIO pins yeah, that has your infrared stuff on it. <clears throat> and then you would make a playlist that would just run through. I mean, I don't, it would take a long time. I mean, my infrared database on my flipper is vast, but like, there are large, like it, it takes a while for me to write it to the SD card <laughs> when I put it on there, <laughs> but you don't have, you don't need the entire database. There's a lot of recycling for like power uh power codes oh, in infrared so you could You'd probably be smart about that. it and be like yeah like what well you know you could probably take i because i have um and I, I i haven't published it yet but i have like a how i want to set up my how i like to set up my flipper uh post that yeah. we use internally and 
uh, in there is like where I pull my data from. So there's certain GitHubs that have the repositories yeah. of the infrared data. You could go find this all on your own. Like it's not, it's no secret or anything, but you could take that and then go compare all those files and see what's common between them and just take the common ones. And, and so like, in other words, the infrared codes for power on power off yeah. on Samsung versus LG versus whatever could be pretty similar. Are you referring to like the mega database for like if you on GitHub? Um, uh, it's awesome uh, Flipper Zero. No, IRDB is the. It's included in there. Yeah, it, there's IR. like a huge list of. Yeah, Awesome Flipper has a link yeah. to the IR, the, but there's a couple other IR ones that I aggregate. Bill, you, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I do, man. Like I can't, I just can't get past it. I like, I can't. I, it, I, it's hitting me. He said IR flashbang. So I'm just picturing Dave like going up to a sports bar and like kicking in the front door and, <laughs> and nobody caring all the tvs go off yeah he's so haywire man that's that, i love it man no, we I, should we should make your dreams come true like let's let's turn that that, that this is know. where i'm going bill i want our <laughs> no, dreams to come true i want this is no i found a more efficient way to do it i just used the the casio watch that had the remote control on it and I would just I mean, like go into restaurants that had TVs on and just turn stuff off and just wait. Something in, man. I, I got, you know, I want, I want to see you throw something in there and call some. <laughs> yeah. It that, reminds that, me of the, it was the schmoo group back in the day that took a WT 54 G and like padded it and put like a Wi-Fi attack on it. And it was like their Wi-Fi grenade. Yeah. I had, <laughs> there was a company, I can't remember their name, but they were giving out to any, any unique email address. Uh, they were giving out free access points mm. and they were the size of a, they would run on nine volts and they were the size of a pack of cigarettes. Yeah. 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 It gargoyles. was like the, they were the gargoyles, uh, gargoyles? The TP, TP link makes I think them. it was the gargoyles. Maybe. Um, so in those were, so you could load any attack, you could just run it and just send it to Dioth. Rutabaga. It looked like a rutabaga. Yeah. It looked very similar to that. A bit yeah. smaller. Remember that? That's a piece of history right yeah. there. Um, and you could just load whatever attack you, so you load a D auth on that, plug a nine volt battery into it and walk around and watch like people be slightly annoyed by not being able to connect to the <laughs> internet. I'm really- Shenanigans. I, I'm, I, it's shenanigans. I'm really into the infrared stuff. I want to also think about how you would use infrared on a pen test. And to your point, Dave, like some of my trains of thinking are <clears throat> on a pen test, if you need a distraction, your idea of- the infrared grenade is that what we're calling it IR i called grenade? it a flashbang I IR like flashbang. we're calling it an ir flashbang your concept of an ir flashbang where like <clears throat> there's a security guard behind the desk inevitably there's tvs that they're watching uh with security cameras on it and there's inevitably tvs because everyone's going to have tvs in the lobby that are displaying yeah. crap if you were to do the ir flashbang and make all those things go haywire that would be a distraction where I, at a physical pen desk, maybe I can just walk in. Well, maybe my IR flashbang is the, just much like a flashbang is a distraction for a SWAT team, your IR flashbang is the distraction for your physical pen test team. Well, you, you've created a scenario Bill's, that Bill's allows- Bill's shaking. I love it. Bill's shaking. I love <laughs> yeah. the expressions Bill gives me. Bill's like, what? Paul is well, like off his rocker. No, 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 no. no. You're onto it. it. So you, you think you're going to distract the security guard because you changed the TV to play 80s commercials or some shit? <laughs> no, yes, no, no. I do. I, haven't you seen the movies? Born. They're sitting there watching the football Born. game and that goes the off. Football. They're distracted, man. So you're missing an opportunity here. It's, it's not that 
distracting them by turning off the TV is the opportunity. The opportunity to elevate privilege here is by turning off the TV or making it go haywire. And then a little while later, calling them and saying like, hey, um, are you guys having trouble with your TV? Oh, wasn't that in sneakers was that sneakers it's, it's like it's a it's a it's, a, it's, it's a classic, in a lot of movies it's a lot of movies it's yes. a classic ruse yeah, it's a classic but, ruse but it's a classic ruse but it works yes um you can just call oh, up and say hey I, need, you guys I, need some I, help is that better yeah. bill the classic ruse yeah it's good but i've got a, i've got a better one for you oh and let's do it this is, gonna blow, this is gonna blow your guys mind i'm sure none of you guys nobody even listening has ever tried this but uh next time you go to your sports bar um right and they and they have open wi-fi right for the for the guest get guess what wi-fi network the tvs are on right it's always on that network always and then um you know you can google cast or whatever to those tvs and just do it without having to like you know take over with with ir you can just take over from no but that's interesting though because google cast there is no is there authentication no so once you cast no i i've done i've done this in my house a million times now that i think of it if i need to cast something it's usually when my Android TV or whatever on the TV is messed up and I'm too lazy or tired to go fix it. I'm like, oh, the app works on my phone. So I'm going to go on my phone and then I'm just going to cast on my TV and, right. watch, and watch my show. But there's no, to your point, Bill, no authentication in that process. None whatsoever. Yeah. As long as I'm on the same network, I can cast that TV. Yeah, I do it all the time. And it's funny, like there, I was in a, I was in a in a bar or whatever the other it was a, it was a few months ago and uh, they it, up in the corner as you walk out they had the the CCTV TV right so the yeah. one that hey we're watching you guys and that one was on the guest network and and you know so I I put whatever on it right so now Wait, I, is is whatever like Pornhub is that what you American Gladiators no. I, I would try to do something a little bit more funny and clever than porn right something yeah. that you. Know, because there, there could be there could be children, so please shy away from from porn. What do you sure. what do you stream? stream ha I, I want Inspector you to stream hackers. No, I want you to stream hackers. I want you to put hackers the movie mm -hmm. <clears throat> on those TVs, right? Yeah, I've I've got my go to. It's all good. I, like I've got my go to, my signature, whatever. Right. But we'll uh, chat after the show. What your go to is? We could build a device that does both, right? That does IR and casting. But speaking of flipper, Paul, this is where I thought you were going to go. Uh, the BLE spam oh. over to Android. Oh, man. This, this is the story that just, it's like the gift that keeps on giving and the story that keeps on giving, right? Because now someone has ported the BLE spam to Android. But the whole thing with Android is Android limits apps' ability to um, increase the transmit power on the Bluetooth radio. So while someone has developed, if you're brave enough to either compile or install an APK on your Android phone. And when I looked at this today, I'm like, that's nah, not going on the phone that I have all my apps on and use every day. That's going on one of my other Android devices that I have flagged specifically for research, by the way. Um, so I think we're coming down to you need multiple Android phones. Yeah, There was another use case I had for that in my stories where uh, it might have been this one where I'm like, oh, also, this article talks, Bill, about um, remediation, how you can turn it off on these platforms so you don't receive those messages. Dave, I was doing this to you uh, last week. Yeah, and I just the, went and did this. Yeah, and basically. so you do that uh, on that device. But my thing is, 
I need a device where it's vulnerable so I can still test uh, the apps. Yeah. So. But it's still not as good as a Flipper Zero for distance. So, you know, don't throw away your Flipper Zeros if your favorite thing is to do. But also I will say <clears throat> Flipper Zero isn't even the best device for this. No. I built a Raspberry Pi with an external uh, Bluetooth adapter that is BLE that has um, the latest one I got has a re uh, re removable antenna. <laughs> now you get some serious range yeah. on that. Because I was kind of like, yeah, the original ones on the flipper that just work with uh, iOS devices, I wasn't impressed with the range. But Larry and I were talking like there's a lot of factors in that. Like, um, well, interference obviously being one, but sure. the other being what kind of Apple device you have and what version of the OS it runs. When I mm -hmm. was uh, testing it against my family and my kids' friends that brought their Apple devices over the house, it was it, seemingly random, right? Like I'd launch the attack and like one person would get it and then they would make it go away and then it wouldn't go back for them. And then like a little while later, another device would do it. But then if I had a device that I controlled, if I could lock that device and unlock it, it would get it again. Yeah. But it also, I think what Larry and I determined we were because we did kind of independent testing and then compared notes was it depends on the type of device, whether it's an iPhone, which iPhone it is, or whether it's an iPad and which operating system is on each of those devices. The base, yeah. chip, et cetera. Firmware. The whole thing. Yeah, the yeah. hardware, the firmware, the operating system. Like all of those are variables that determine like how well or not well this attack is going to work. Yeah, vulnerability. Uh, yeah. But also I found the latest one that I have on here uh, is... What's it called? Not it's bad BLE spam. So this is the new generic one. So this is yeah. Rogue Master firmware uh, on my flipper. So like if I execute this one, uh, this works cross platform. Oh, hey. Did you get that on? Your yep, I just got. I haven't turned that off on this. Is that machine. Windows or Mac? Uh, it no Chromebook. Oh, it's a and you got it on your Chromebook? Yeah. Wow. It's an Android wow. device, effectively. Yeah, I'm seeing. Oh, you want to connect my your Pixel Buds? That's awesome. I didn't know it worked on Chromebook. Yeah, wow, that's right a now. holy shit. Wow. I mean, why wouldn't it? That's your work here is done, Paul. My work here is done. <laughs> I'm glad I brought a test device. I didn't know oh, that it I actually bitch. did not know it worked on Chromebooks. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Now so, I'm thinking if I bring it to my kids' school, I could spam all the Chromebooks in the kids' school. That's amazing. So there's a secondary um, effect that we haven't discussed is that I like that you bring devices every week to the studio that succumb to my uh, <laughs> my Bailey spam attacks. Well, dude. this is Great. how we do hardening. It's just organic. Because uh, you didn't wait. You didn't get that on your phone because you turned it off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just didn't think about it because I haven't encountered uh, uh, that before. Um, then you started coming back here to the studio. And exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> so there's a secondary effect here, which uh, is the noise ratio of Bluetooth signal that that creates. Mm -hmm. So I had a similar app that was on my my flipper. I've had it there a while. I kind of I installed it and forgot about it. And I was sitting at my desk. I was working on uh, some three D printing uh, design stuff. And uh, I, I was working. I was using th this same mouse, standard Bluetooth mouse, and uh, it stopped working. So I started troubleshooting it. You know, just turning it off and on again, and uh, it still would not work. And I looked down, and my two year old is holding my flipper. And sure enough. She was interfering 
Like she basically DDoSed my mouse as That's a result amazing. of Bluetooth. And I'm like, way to go. Yeah. She's going to have a future in cybersecurity. I hope. That's yep. proud, proud dad moment right there. I was very proud. You know, <clears throat> and don't touch I, me like that or I'm wiping out your mouse. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I need candy every day from now on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I was thinking about self-defense as she gets older, actually. Every trick helps. Mm-hmm. So other, actually, other, I keep please. thinking as you're talking about all the stuff with the Flipper Zero, you would have been in hog heaven at Wild West Hacking Fest because there was so much cool Flipper Zero stuff being done. Mm-hmm. The the conference badge needed the 30 scans and using a sequence on the Flipper Zero, people were hacking their badge just to replay it, although it took a little while without having to actually do the work. They were cloning electronic door keys and a few other things. Um like I said, Paul, you 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 would have just had so much fun. It's a it's a Swiss on. Army knife <clears throat> of hacking, uh, but again, it's kind of like a very much a Swiss Army knife, and especially in that, like I update firmware, and it's like, oh, there's like the proof of concept for that attack. I'm like, cool. Yeah. Now, how do I go build something that can make it better? That's dedicated. Right. How do I get like a Raspberry Pi device or uh, HackRF? Like, how do I do this like for reals now? Um, right. Which is why I, I like this Flipper Zero as a introductory tool for people getting into the field because like it's got a screen and you can go through all these attacks and like wow that's really cool and I'm like okay yeah. now that like you get that stuff like let's talk about all the different things it does and the specific tools that you can do um, I think that's a it's a conversation that has to be included every time we talk about the Flipper right right like there's dedicated stuff that does this better and more advanced and with a lot better configuration options and challenges you more like i've talked about to implement some of these attacks we're talking about yeah i've got a flipper and i go install from file and i update the firmware and then i just click around and and i'm doing it i'm like well that was too easy how do i like do this for reals (laughs) yeah and none of those are are have an interactive tamagotchi type (laughs) character built in well, what I like about the Rogue Master firmware, there's no there's no dolphin. There's no Tamagotchi. It disables that. I, like I searched dolphin. for a long time because I'm like, this dolphin is so annoying and I hate it so much. And I'm like, how do you disable that? And there was a couple of posts that I was reading. And then I read the Rogue Master stuff, like read through uh, their documentation. And they're like, no, you can download a version of ours and, and we just yeah. disable that for us. They went through the work of actually disabling <clears throat> all of that which so is that's great. so that you're holding a non-dolphin safe flipper and you can configure it you can configure in rogue master like what shows up on the screen like i've got the battery with the percentage um the sd card indicator and like whether or not sound is turned on but you can enable or disable what's shown on the, the home screen which i like a lot also very highly on i don't know if you played around with third-party firmwares they can also be very unstable. Yeah. <laughs> so like I keep this one as like my unstable experimental. And then my other flipper, like unleashed in my opinion, is a little more stable. So I keep unleashed uh on that on the other one. I have to so. get an other flipper at some point. I also have to buy another Raspberry Pi at some point. Mm. And, oh yeah. Uh, uh Bill, you were saying this is the like the, I linked to it in my show notes. So basically, I got- like I want a Raspberry Pi five just because I want one. Like I just, I want to mess with one because it's the latest thing, and like I just want one mm-hmm. to mess with. I'm not saying that. 
just because they released a Raspberry Pi 5 that it's game changing or you, you should go get one because of this, that, or the other thing. I'm like, I just kind of, I, I want one. Like, I just want one to mess with mostly because also I had a Raspberry Pi 4 and I can't find it. I was telling Dave that before yeah. the show. It's so ironic. Like, I don't know if I deployed it and it's sitting somewhere here in the studio and yeah. I've deployed because they're small. I lose them. Mm-hmm. I can't find my four. So I'm like, now I just want, I want a five. And most of the other ones I have oh. are threes. So like, I feel like the three to five jump is significant. So I want a five to mess around. And I found the, what was the site that I found? Pi locator. Yeah. Dot com. But it Public looks service announcement. Our friends, Larry and Paul need somebody to write the equivalent of find my, I, my raspberry Pi because <laughs> right. they've yes. got more than they can track. Mm-hmm. Is it pingable? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway. Oh my God. Bash.org. I've lost a server. I can ping it. It works. It's fine. But I just don't know where the hell it is. is. You know, (laughs) someone told me a story today where they went to an organization and were talking with them and like whatever. And they were like, they found an entire data center, like not a server, not a rack. They had a data center that they couldn't, they, they found. A data center. They like. What do you mean that they found? It's a hard they thing found. To lose. Like I like I'm missing my Raspberry Pi four. Josh, they lost a data center. <laughs> like I'm missing a Pi four. They win. They're still paying they're fucking rent yeah. and they property win. taxes. Lee's right. And- like they win. Like it's a whole data center. That was great. That was I great. Mean, but it reminded me of the a server into the wall. But that's a lot easier than right? losing a data the university center. fable where they I lost the Novell server in the wall. That's usually the thing and. Sometimes that's a fable. Sometimes not so much. Josh, you have a story where someone lost a server under a stairwell, right? It was built into oh, the under the stairwell. It was a, a, a column, a support yeah. column. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it was it was a thin client a controller for like the old AS four hundred in the basement, and mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> literally it was it was there were doors there, but they were went, went all the way to the sides of the support column. We never knew that was a door there, and there was a bookcase in front of it. Until the day we heard ning, 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 and moved everything and found a dead machine. So anyway. eight-inch floppies. Right? Wow. Uh, RPILocator.com. Awesome. Yeah. The, the bad news is, Paul, that like the Raspberry Pi 5s, they're still out of stock everywhere. And yeah, you can yeah. only, just looking right now, you can only find some fours. So I Banana would suggest. Pie. Yeah. Or, or go Banana Pi, Pi or Zima boards. Zima boards are uh, Intel. Which does make it easier, and banana pies are uh, available, and they're pretty comparable, actually. Zima is in like the beverage. Yes, I swear to God. Okay. Yeah, I think I bookmarked that when you were talking about that earlier, Josh. Oh, those look cool. I've never yeah. heard of these. Yeah, I, when I was at John Con in Philly, thank you, Russ. You rock. Um, uh, they, they had uh, one guy built a war driving rig with two of them. They have a really a significant amount of mini PCI attachers, attachment points. Mm-hmm. And so he had every channel uh, for five gigahertz on two Zima boards tracked at the same time. And it was really cool. Uh, and then somebody else, they were running uh, a full phone system with military field phones with Zimas. And I just, I just, while we were talking, I found four of them for sale. So I'm buying four military field phones. And what is, cool. what was the Zima boards? Like the, Technology yeah, Zima Zima board. like the beverage? Yeah. Yeah. From the nineties. It's still around. Is it? Uh, yeah. Uh, 30% Zima off. Board.com. 
30% off your first order. Um, of Zima the beverage or Zima the, the Zima server? the board Zima the board Zima the board. Zima the board. Zima the board. Zima the board. All right, here's what we'll do. We'll each spend 120 bucks. I'll buy Zima the beverage, and you guys buy Zebra the board, and we'll see who has more fun. <laughs> Sounds like a party. Why can't, why can't we do both? Why does this have to be mutually exclusive? <laughs> this this is why I wanted to have Bill on the show for exactly <laughs> that comment. <laughs> Wait, was it a? We didn't use Zima. What was the other heinous beverage at DerbyCon that we would heat up? Uh, ice. Smirnoff Ice. Smirnoff, Smirnoff Ice. ice. Smirnoff Ice, ice and Zima baby. are like essentially the same thing with just a different label on the bottle. Is that true? No. Jesus. No. Trent used to have a frigging oven for those fucking things. Oh, my oh God. I hated God. them so much. Oh, yeah. That was were horrible to drink. Oh. They were. Oh, Every time I presented at DerbyCon, Dave would hand me a like not even warm it was hot <laughs> like yeah they had an oven like they literally tea, had a yeah. fucking oven it was like things. hot green tea temperature but it was smirnoff ice it was awful it's why it was awful. 172 degrees presenting yes. with mcmurray and jim Br and day bringing two drinks one was the ice i don't remember what the other i got the short straw and had to drink the ice Ugh. Ugh. terrible Okay, so Zima board, the highest model, uh, in thirty four fifty processor, four cores, eight gigs of RAM, thirty two gigs onboard storage, and runs at six watts. Yeah, two gigabit battery forever. Yeah, it's expensive. It's one hundred and twenty bucks. No, the the eight gig of the eight gig uh, uh, memory is two hundred bucks. But thirty percent off, so buck forty. Buck forty. Which third are they cutting yeah, off? Mm -hmm. Just the tip, just to see how okay. it feels. Yeah, I mean, I'm but sorry. the it is, you know, I, th I think MS isn't MSRP around eighty bucks or something. So with the Halloween special here on the uh, Zima board, it's one hundred forty bucks. Yeah, it's a lot more. That's, and that's it's x eighty six. Yeah, in this it's, it's more, but this shouldn't matter. But it looks really nice. Mm -hmm. It does. It looks. Very fin polished, finished. Like, like yeah. And, and it's, uh, it to me, the way it's designed, I want to mount it vertically on a wall so that the heat would dissipate upwards and then it would just, like, that positioning would look cool to begin with. Oh, in terms of cool hardware, too, I didn't put this in the show notes, but uh, there was, I sent you guys this uh, badge thing. Someone created um, a really cool badge. Simple badge is simple, but it's yours. Um, is it was on Hackaday, and it links to the code. So it's a WaveShare Pico Plus with a WaveShare uh, 1.3 inch Pico LCD, uh, a battery pack, 3.6 volt battery pack, um, charges on USB-C, and all the code is there uh, in his GitHub repo. Uh, that creates a, a badge that basically displays uh, images. So he had like a QR code for his GitHub repo. He had a picture of himself. Then he had like a visit my website. Here's my Twitter handle kind of thing. And like other images that would show up. I was like, this is like a really cool badge project. Like I want to build one of these and just have it tacked onto my lanyard. But like when we go to conferences, um, I'll put it in. Oh, it's color. Yeah, it's a color LCD. 
it's really I'll, I'll put it in the PSW uh, slash, hopefully we can get it in the I gotta get it in the show notes oh they're building this for Supercon did I put that in my I didn't put that in the show notes did I no you didn't crap sorry I'm just looking for it I put it in slack we, I'll get it in the show notes uh, after the show I thought this, this was really cool, cool. I think I, I think it would be really fun to have everyone like build their own kind of version of this uh, and iterate it because I thought it was it was just so cool. Oh, that's neat! Isn't that neat? The like Hackaday a, article. Yeah, Fair. that is neat. I was like, we all need. To, this is something we would do, <laughs> right? Bill, this is something you would. Do. I'm, I'm like, I was like, Bill could have wrote this article. Oh, I think Bill, you're on mute. Yeah, that that is definitely. I'd, I'd like to build one of those. I'm kind of done with the badge life stuff for a little bit, though. I don't. I, I get you know, like we've all you, you, we've all felt it. Like man, like after a couple hours of wearing batteries and yes, yes, around my neck and like banging, like you know, banging against my chest. There we go. Get that out. Um, yeah, I I don't know. It is cool though. It's very cool. It's cool. I don't know how like weight wise what it to your point, Bill. Like what it would bring to the table, but. I would want to put an SP32 on it so I could put new images on Wi-Fi. But now you're talking about it's going to chew through more battery. It's going to be maybe a little heavier, you know, the whole thing. There's a balance there for sure. Um, with Florida hey, man, we can't, uh, in closing bad. thoughts, Florida man was basically a SIM swapping attack. So your Florida mm -hmm. man story is your classic SIM swapper attack. Um, yeah. So they tricked mobile phone, mobile operator employees into porting them to uh, to Sims, and that I, I still come down to sometimes Sim swappers social engineer like over the phone, but also sometimes Sim swappers. Darknet Diaries podcast um, chronicled a, a, a story about this, and I never realized this. Sim swappers will send someone to go into uh, AT&T, T-Mobile, whatever store, and just basically straight up steal the manager tablet. And the manager tablet from these stores obviously has access to like basically sims, yeah. basically sim swap. Um, and so it, kind of a funny story when I was in the AT&T store and I was like waiting for stuff. I was upgrading one of my family's phones or whatever. It was like, dude, like, Sim swapping is like a, a thing because he was asking me for my you know pin code and going through the thing. I'm like, did you know like sim swapping is a thing? He's like, yeah, we've been training on that a little bit. I'm like, you know, someone will come in because I think he might have left the tablet and like turned his back. And I was like, dude, I want to help you out because I don't want you to get in trouble. But I'm like, people come in and they'll they're gonna try and steal your tablet, and that's part. He's like, I didn't know that was actually part of that. I'm like, yeah, dude, like people will come in and legit just steal your tablet. And they know they have about an hour before you can disable that tablet to SIM swap to get the second factor on the email accounts and or cryptocurrency accounts to steal cryptocurrency. And that's pretty much exactly what Florida man was doing. Um, and they stole about a million dollars worth of cryptocurrency. I mean, it's not news necessarily, Ooh. but like it, it's a thing, which I think is kind of. So he has well. to pay that back and then 30 months in prison. Right. I don't know. doesn't seem harsh enough. Yeah, I mean, maybe it seems hard, hard to tell. There's a lot. Well, I don't often cover like the 
hacker gets arrested kind of stories for like a largely like those reasons because the we were talking about Ross Albrecht before the show, right? Yeah. Like there's the extreme like Ross Albrecht cases. And then there's the ones where people get off entirely. And then there's like every kind of punishment or sentencing in between. And then also add into that matrix what country that you're from and what country you were convicted of that crime. In my assessment of largely reading articles and listening to podcasts about people who have been convicted and sentenced, it's it's like kind of like a rant. It seems like rant. I mean, it's not random, but it seems random from the outside looking in. But also there's a lot of factors that go into that, right? Like there's the everything down from like the what mood was the judge in when they did sentencing all the way to everything you did or didn't do in your life in the context of the crime you committed affects yeah. your sentencing, yeah. right? Like the yeah. your demeanor in court could affect your sentencing, right? right. Like I, it, it's it's all so I, that's why largely like I don't really like covering these stories because we just get into semantics and in like situations that we don't necessarily have full insight into. So the, uh, the timing regarding sentencing can can be a factor. I read a, a study a little last year or so um, that talked about uh, sentencing severity related to the time of day and yeah, whether or yeah. not the judge had had lunch basically like right, you don't right, want to be yeah, there right. right before lunch you want to be there right after after lunch um so that everybody's happy they've they've got enough carbohydrates to yes eat to, yeah, they've had a snickers right right <laughs> um and uh you stand a better chance at uh at not having as severe penalty basically Really quick. Oh, just, yeah. uh, oh, that, that study is actually very old. I, I We used to tell the prisoners about it when I worked as a cop. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Seriously, not a joke. Um, my story number 17, if you want the best explanation of OAuth in graphical form ever, it's my story number 17. It is amazing and awesome. Also, remember, OAuth banks on the fact that the authentication... Uh, provider like the end provider like not facebook because facebook is the provider of the credentials but whatever you're authenticating to it's up to them to check the validity of your oauth token yeah. and if they don't you can read about it in story number 17 of examples of those that don't <laughs> so it, it was awesome so so does i was reading this and thinking do people actually do that because i never have but I'm guessing it's I'll, really popular I'll to use log Google, in with your Facebook. I'll use, well, I'll use Google for certain things to authenticate uh, and only certain things. And there's like a risk calculation that kind of goes sure. on in the back of my head when I do that. I never use Facebook, to your point, Dave, yeah. as an authentication token because I just don't, I don't know. I just don't trust it for whatever reason. Um, my story number 15, um, this was, are you going to ransom or are you going to steal data? And I listened to a, a podcast called The Hacker Mind that interviewed someone from Accenture that that does uh, a lot of this work uh, into like responding to, to ransomware and stuff like this. And the trend that they're seeing that this article kind of backs up with the Klopp ransomware group um, behind the move it attack is not so much I'm going to encrypt all your files and ransom you. It's more I'm just going to steal all of your stuff and then you're going to have to pay me so I don't release it kind of thing. So it's like a 
different double extortion ransomware. It's not even double. It's single. It so they're not encrypting, Josh. So it's not double extortion. It's oh, like okay. single single extortion. But I haven't encrypted your files. So like basically, I stole all your data, and now I'm like, you just need to pay me. Like, I'm not going to go through the trouble of encrypting all your shit. I just I have all your data, and you need to pay me. They're getting around the the rules and the laws and the penalties right. for encrypting of data because it's not, not technically <laughs> ransomware because that's crypto locker. They're just saying if you don't give me money, I'll release your data. It's just extor- It's like is- straight up extortion, right? Which is yeah. yeah. It's kind of interesting to think about how that impacts how they exploit, how they move laterally, how they conduct their operations, right? So that was my story number fifteen. Fascinating stuff. Um, what else was in there really quick? Oh, Apple is talking about updating firmware of phones while they're inside the box. So Apple, you know, through the supply chain, iPhone ends up in a box, has to get shipped and whatever. And there's some time that passes. And this came to, to bear where Apple found like was aware of some pretty heinous stuff that needed to be patched in iOS. And let's just say there's like hundreds of thousands of phones that are just ready to be delivered to customers. How do I update the, the firmware on them? They found that in the SDK for the latest iOS, there was references to like factory OTA. So like OTA network utils, OTA Wi-Fi utils, that they're going to, uh, they're basically laying the foundation so that iPhones can be updated like while they're still in the box. I'm on the, like... I don't know. I think I'm on the fence about that. Like, if it's secure, if it's a secure update, is there really a downside to that? Because all of us know working in cybersecurity, when you talk to your friends and family that are in cybersecurity and you look at their phone and you're like, dude, you haven't updated your iOS in how long? Like, do you know about NSO Group and zero-click exploits? Because you're vulnerable to that shit right now. I don't, I don't have, I mean, like w- without looking at the code or, you know, and I know they're just laying the groundwork, but I, but I trust Apple to do it securely. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Agreed. When, when, when I open up that box or I give that box as a, as a gift and it opens up and it's running the latest, whatever, that's awesome. Like good, good on them. I think, I think it's great. Yeah. I like this concept as well. And before I read the article, I was, as you were saying this, Paul, I'm like, they would have to have a small thing, a, a thing of some kind or a way of leveraging like a mixture of uh, basically a, an antenna and a, a wireless programming methodology to plug this in. And it looks like they're leveraging Wi-Fi. Now, the only concern I would have with this is making sure the unit shuts off. Mm. Because if they are, if they're bypassing the battery somehow by like leveraging some sort of direct wireless charging methodology or something like that, which they probably aren't doing. Which they do. Like iPhones yeah. will don't really turn off all the way, right? That was a whole thing about Oh, okay. How they even though it's off, like it's still on and can do still communicate. Okay, then yeah, that makes things easier. Yeah. Um but yeah, my my main main point main concern would be if it stayed on and the battery got hot and caused a fire, but it sounds like they've already addressed that. So I'll, I'll, I'll step down. Yeah. I'm sure Apple is not wanting stuff to catch fire while it's still in the box. That would be bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was a Samsung thing, right? Mm-hmm. One of their notes was catching Seven. fire. That was bad. Seven. They couldn't go on planes. That hurt them in the market, like really, really bad. So Apple is, in my opinion, hyper aware of situations like that to do it safely. So yeah. 
Yeah. Awesome. Well, that will conclude this edition of Paul Security Weekly. Thanks everyone for listening and watching. We'll see you next time. Over and out.